together again. Gee, it's good to be together again. I just can't imagine that you've ever been gone. It's not starting over, it's just going on together again. Now we're here and there's no need remembering when. Cause no feeling feels like that feeling. Together again. Together again. Gee, it's good to be together again. Awesome. It's time to play the music. It's time to light the lights. Waka, 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 everyone, and welcome to Director's Club. I am your host, Jim Laskowski, and will there be Muppet voices and impressions today? I have a sneaking suspicion that there will be, along with dad jokes and wordplay and puns. (laughs) Muppet sounds aplenty. Um, but I'm going to need some help with tackling the comedy genre. Two delightful new guests are joining me for the first time. Long overdue, like with a lot of people that I have on for the first time. But I've been a fan of theirs ever since crossing paths during film spotting trivia. And now they have their own new comedy-centric podcast called A Trip Through Comedy. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Ross Bratton and Mr. Trip Burton! <laughs> Unfortunately, this is an audio meme. You can't see all of us flailing our arms. Like. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. No, thank you. Thank you so much for having us, Jim. Yes. Oh, sure. well, I'm so excited. So excited to be here. Absolutely excited. Yeah. I'm excited to have you both here. Um, Trip, we actually met, didn't we? We met at that we, Petit we Milan did. screening, uh, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, I saw you do a Q&A about that. Couple of years ago, yes. yes, and that's when the microphones weren't working or something. Yeah, I recall. think so. So, yeah, <laughs> and we were all we were all in masks. So, oh yes, I remember those days. Yes, yes, uh, yes. Uh-huh. Uh, it was a pleasure to meet you, and I'm glad that you're Thank here. You. Um, yeah, I was I was pretty overjoyed with your choice of director to come on the show to talk about it because, well, I think like a lot of listeners, possibly maybe um, if you're of a certain generation. Uh, you probably grew up with the Muppets, and certainly the Muppet movie was an early favorite of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then even even jumping forward, little did I know when I first went to the uh, Cineplex to see a musical called Little Shop of Horrors that it was directed by a man by the name of Frank Oz. And I was yeah. just like, I know that name. Where do I know <laughs> that name? Hmm. And even during the last, the concluding part of the last episode I did on James Wan, I was like, oh, yeah, he did Miss Piggy. And that's all I could think of at the time. I was like, wait a minute. Hello, Jim. Where's your brain? Has it stopped working? Because he did Yoda and so many. You and Marlon Brando just know him as Miss Piggy, right? Yeah. Very good. That was going to bring that up. You're right. <laughs> yes, of course. So, yeah, no, I'm I'm so excited Good on the both of you for for mm-hmm. for picking this filmmaker. But f- first and foremost, since this is your first time, I need to know. I need to know this, otherwise, I can't move on. I can't continue <laughs> with the show. Why the heck do you guys love movies so much? How did this all oh. begin, Ross? Let's start with you. When did you sort of declare yourself? I'm a cinephile. Uh, great question. Uh, the. I don't know. I've been ever since I was a little kid. I just really have loved movies. I was one of those kids that had the subscription to Entertainment Weekly when yep. Entertainment Weekly was the magazine for it seemed like all of us to like 
devour and you know the oscar issues and those like you know season previews and i would just gobble them up and i cared about the oscars so much even when i had definitely not seen any of the movies uh Mm. i vividly remember being very upset that shakespeare and love beat saving private ryan despite the fact that i had seen neither one of them um (laughs) just because i like steven spielberg um and it's just kind of grown over the years. I, I don't think there's anyone else in my family that loves movies anywhere near as I do. Um, but it just kind of, my mom loves old movies uh, and kind of was like, oh, TCM seems like a good thing for you. And uh, <laughs> that's kind of been, I guess my origin story, just like you just kind of see these, these films and it just like you, my brain just like activated so, I mean, that's kind of, I guess, my yeah. opinion, sorry. <laughs> that's kind of very similar to me in that, you know, especially in the mid-90s, I was just kind of, what what is the thing? Because I tried sports. I really did. <laughs> I, I was like, I got to be like a typical dude and get into sports and try every sport. And I was so bad at all of them. I'm like, I, I was really lost. I was like, well, okay, I'll pick up a guitar, but I also want to just do nothing but watch movies after school with my friends, too. So it sort of just became interchangeable in my passions but i just i just always find it interesting when people because to me like i always think of an epiphany or uh, that lightning bolt moment of like dun 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 the, you know i think of when i saw pulp fiction and just go that's it you know i walked out of the theater i'm like all right this is it and it's interesting when i hear people kind of just say no it really there wasn't like a specific point in time or a specific sort of zeitgeist moment it was just I grew up loving movies and watched every movie, and that was it, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you have a yeah. favorite movie, correct? Or- that is that is very correct, and I think my favorite – my top three movies have been cemented, I think, by the time I was, like, 12, which I feel like <laughs> a lot of people – like, I feel like there's certain things where it's, like, there are certain movies that it's, like, you talk to people, it's, like, oh, no, since I was young, like, this is the movie. And it's, like, The Godfather, Doctor Strangelove, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off have basically been – which all, by the way, go together immensely. Um, oh, sure. Absolutely. Totally. Mash them totally up. Mash them up. I want to see that. Yeah, exactly. Welcome to welcome to the Ross Bratton Film Festival. Um, but they – to me, it's always been those three because it's just – you have a, a massive crime epic about the status of America. You have an insane war movie that is an amazing satire of – nuclear you know war in the cold war and then you just have a movie that no matter how many times i watch it it makes me laugh every time even when i know what's happening even though i know every time about ferris bueller and matthew broderick will come up later in this episode (laughs) like i'm not sure that movie works as well if you don't have all the components working at the high level that they are um, and so it's just those have always been my three since i was a, a kid and you know, seen a lot of movies, seen a lot of stuff that are absolutely five-star movies, including some that we're going to talk about today. But those three, just for some reason, I always just come back to. I'm so itching to do a John Hughes episode at some point. I've just been putting it off. And it's one of those ideas that I thought it it would be interesting to have, because I did this very early on in uh, the director's club run here, where I had a detractor and an absolute insane passionate fan of brian de palma oh and i know people who hate john hughes you know and i find that really interesting not 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 to pitch anything but trip and ross talking about john hughes might give you 
something <laughs> of that uh, conversation because uh, John Hughes, John Hughes is fine, but not not my favorite, and not someone I have any nostalgic attachment to either, which I think plays a big part in it. It's also yes. if you're doing his directing stuff because I mean he doesn't have a, an extensive mm-hmm. directing career. It's like I think eight movies. It's not a long career. He gets credit some because he wrote other movies. Yeah, but true. There's, you know, the, his directing career is kind of a very limit because he dies young too, but mm-hmm. it is kind of much more limited. Ross, I do really love Ferris Bueller, though. I will say that. So they say, there we go. That's yeah. that's all that matters to me. We can that's fine. You can hate every other one. Yeah. <laughs> that's fine. I used to love it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's one of those movies where I, I. I mm. Ferris now annoys me as an adult. Mm-hmm. I'm just kind of like, that yeah. spoiled brat. <laughs> he, he is, you know, but the interesting thing to me about Ferris or why he seems to be this character that sticks in my head and that I do defend him is in the end, I do think he cares about Sloan. I think he cares about Cameron. And it, it to some extent, his view is to try to push, especially Cameron, to lighten up and to try mm-hmm. to enjoy life a little bit more. And that this one day in the end of, you know, when you're, you know, really at the end of your life, are you going to remember this one random day in school that you had like this thing? Or are you going to remember now this adventure we all had? And isn't that worth it? Isn't that in the end the more important thing? And I think that to me is why Ferris is actually, you know, not as much of a jerk. He, he, look, he does, you know, obnoxious things to numerous people, and also they're played for as not necessarily the greatest people. But I, I think at the end, the ethos that he represents and what he's trying to do, I think, is nice and actually is a helpful thing for people. Oh, that's a good read. I like it now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'll, I'll watch it again with that in mind. That's so sweet. I mean, obviously, Hughes had a sweet side to him throughout all of his movies. I'm not like. Oh yeah, trying to say that he's uh, like oh you know th- th- that's the thing too is like it nowadays everything gets filtered through the idea of of you know classism and just like oh that spoiled rich brat <laughs> and, you know like I, people feel that way and even like there's the people get like that in Chicago about oh those North Siders oh Wrigleyville <laughs> uh, you know like things like that so I've I, there's been a little bit of projection from. Mm-hmm. From from naysayers sometimes that I kind of go, hmm, are they right or is Ross right? I have to decide again now that I'm 20 years removed from my last viewing of it or something, you know, because we change as yeah. people. So, um, Trip, what yeah. about you? I don't um, know much about your origin story. My, my origin story is very similar to Ross's, I think, just uh, several years before him. Um, I My parents were um, loved the theater and loved – like seeing the big touring musicals come through. So when I was five, they took me to see Cats. I got obsessed with musical theater. Um, I was always the kid who would just memorize and learn as much as I could. So I started with an obsession with musicals. Then I became a Nick at Night kid and was obsessed with like classic TV and reruns and was buying books on the history of TV. Um, And then somewhere that morphed... the moment that I discovered the Oscars, I became obsessed. Um, my parents also, somewhere along the way, got me an Entertainment Weekly subscription real early on. My first issue, I can tell you, was uh, 
the making of Terminator 2. um, Yes. So, and I had a decade's worth of entertainment weeklies before they got thrown away somewhere along the line. But um, so it's, it's the same. I got obsessed with movies through that and anything I could um, Hollywood really, and just became obsessive. And from the age of 10 was making lists and checking things off and marking up my copy of the Leonard Malton guide and you know writing my own mini reviews so like any good cinephile out there there we go yeah yeah i yeah. i <laughs> i remember once when the power went out uh i went through my video hound guide mm-hmm. with a little with a flashlight that i just hoped like oh i hope the batteries don't wear down on this thing but i was just <laughs> like going through it and going what would i grade this movie you yes. know i mean that's and that's why we we are obsessed with letterboxd here yeah. We love lists. Exactly. <laughs> oh yeah. And and stats and all of that stuff. Because oh, you know yeah. I used to I used to try to keep all of that by hand and you know, keeping track of what Siskel and Ebert would say about movies and yeah. Then I discovered Excel and that became a whole thing and yeah. Um, boxed for that. Seriously. Oh well yeah. <laughs> of course. Yeah. We well. here fully endorse Letterboxd, and they should just be a sponsor of every movie podcast at this point. Um, well, well, speaking of Entertainment Weekly, I, I I should ask two experts then. Yeah. Were you an Owen Gleiberman guy or a Lisa Schwartzbaum guy? Oh, that's a good question. I, I don't know if I... Probably Lisa Schwartzbaum more, yep. I think. Yep. But, <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. But, um, I can't tell you. I don't think I ever paid as much attention to the reviews as I did all of the other information that, that was found in those pages. And I say this realizing that I probably, if I see both of their top tens, you, Mm -hmm. it's one of those cases where I'm like, Oh, I would just combine the two. And then that would make my ideal top 10. Like they would Mm -hmm. have some and that, you know? Yeah. As a a teenager, I might've told you Owen Gleiberman, but I think looking back, it's more Lisa Schwartzbaum. Yeah. I, agree. I, I think I may have just been like a little too young. So it was like, for me, mm-hmm. I don't know if I really like registered necessarily whose voice I was necessarily agreeing with or not. I just kind of was like, Oh, what's the, what's the rating at the end? Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. Be, <laughs> so being, a, like, being a Chicago kid. And I don't know if you're the same way, Jim. Um, it was just reading the Ebert and Roper reviews is where I got oh, yeah. my mm-hmm. reviews from that Entertainment Weekly. I did not care as much about what they were saying about stuff. I wanted the information more than anything. Yeah, no, that's, that's very true. I mean, Siskel and Ebert are the cornerstone. Like they just, they represent everything that has to do with the art of film criticism to such a degree that, I mean, it made it, you know, they made that mainstream to where I, I often wonder like what if they hadn't been what they were, would we be podcasting about movies? (laughs) Because they just really paved the way for how people talk about movies in general. And talking to movies to an average audience. Yes. That, you know, you think of the great critics even before them, a lot of them are probably more at like big established papers in big cities. And Siskel and Eber went everywhere in your home in random mm-hmm. parts of the country. I mean, I'm from Connecticut. I'm from southeastern Connecticut. So, I mean, we're, we're not that far from New York, but we're not New York. I didn't get like, you know, we didn't get like the New York Times or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And so, 
Siskel and Ebert was like, you know, on television, it was suddenly like him and it was the two of them in like Gene Shallot. Like, <laughs> which, you know, what a mustache. But uh, brilliant mustache. Yes. The, that talking about movies to an average person and giving it very kind of like a simple thing of like, yes or no, like, should you see this is such a, you know, it's such a way to connect people to so many different movies. Mm-hmm. Yes. And convey them in an intellectual manner without, you know, using big words and things that we couldn't understand or cinematic language that was over our heads. And I think that automatically, seared itself into my brain to to such an extent to where it was like, I can't wait to get the latest, please for Christmas, the latest Roger Ebert's movie home companion, please. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, I was just a nerd about, yeah. Like seeing what he thought of all these movies and, um, still shocked to this day. I, I, the one star review of blue velvet is like cemented oh, into my gosh. brain forever <laughs> we, because uh, I was so shocked when I first saw that. You know, it's it's still crazy. We uh, Matt Singer's book just came out, obviously on on them, and they did a he did a thing at Alamo Drafthouse here in New York City where they showed uh, around the same time a movie that Roger defended and Siskel hated, and a movie that Siskel loved and Roger hated, and so they showed Silence of the Lambs and Blue Velvet, so you could go to one or the other, and uh, me and uh, uh, Quizmaster Thomas Todd. Uh, ended up going to Blue Velvet, and it's still one of those things where it's like you watch this movie going, "This is brilliant, this is unbelievable," and it's like, "Yeah, Roger hated it," and you're like, "What? <laughs> like, what's going on?" But they, he also had, like, I think Lynch was always a tough one. Mm-hmm. For, for yeah, for until him. Straight Story, and then Mulholland Drive. I, I like, I remember the moments of seeing him. He gave a Lynch movie four stars. It's a miracle. <laughs> and then you see the straight story, and they're like, oh, this is the least David Lynch movie on the face yes. of the earth. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the worst movie to show people. They're like, oh, I wonder what else this director did. And it's like, ah, it's going to be very different. <laughs> if you've never read, though, he, um, I think Roger Ebert's review of that is, is something, but he then followed it out with like an essay of like, kind of defending his bad review with the understanding of like, look, this movie is not for anyone, everyone. Like it just didn't click with me. And I think it's one of the smartest things that Ebert ever wrote because, you know, um, it was reminding us very much that just taste trumps so much, even when a film is masterfully made. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And David Lynch, I think, is one of those directors. Well, this is not an episode of David Lynch, but like David Lynch is one of those directors that I think even among Lynch fans, Mm -hmm. it's like everyone has their Lynch that kind of like, oh, yeah, that didn't work for me. Or this one, like I'm I'm more a fan of this one. And you can't explain why. You can't explain why one works and the other doesn't. Mm -hmm. It's just like for some reason, it's like that David Lynch movie didn't work for me, but this one does. And it, it's he's one of those directors that just has that kind of yeah he isn't for everybody and he's also not every one of his movies are for everyone yeah yeah and, and I felt a little bit I still feel a little bit on the outside looking in with the love of um, the latest Fincher movie mm-hmm. you know it's like I I was surprised that I didn't wasn't over the moon about it because I am a Fincher fan. And yet I was like, I feel like this, I've seen this movie so many times, like the limey or, you know, just like the, the hitman going to get it, getting his revenge. I mean, it was really well done. 
<laughs> you know, and it's it's David Fincher, so I'm expecting all those incredible stylistic flourishes and the cool score and editing and all that. I mean, everything about it on a surface level works. I just didn't think it was a great script. As, as someone who runs hot and cold on David Fincher, I really loved it. It's like one of my favorite yeah, most people of, his, do. of his movies. And I wonder sometimes, you know, I also did not go into it, though. I don't always go into a David Fincher movie expecting it to be a masterpiece, right? Like I think a lot of people do. And so it surprised me how much I loved it. It's also just so funny. I think um, they did not, they don't make it clear how much of a dark comedy I think it is versus being a straightforward hitman movie. And so, you know, I was just taken by how hysterical I found the whole movie, but you know, again, and, and, it's, on, and it's weird that not this on comes that wavelength. Out, yeah, this comes out the same year as Todd Haynes's May December, where the audience I saw it with was laughing at almost everything, and I was like, "Is this meant to be a comedy?" <laughs> Question mark. Oh, I don't I know. Seen that yet. I'm still. Yeah. yeah well, that's the, yes. The, both of those are kind of like. Hmm, what am I not getting here? <laughs> Netflix, Netflix releasing all sorts of secret comedies this year, I guess. I guess so. Yeah, I, I'm very excited to see May, December. I I, it, I know it's out here in New York. It's just been trying to find time to do it. And um, mm. I feel like the other one that I guess that I keep hearing is going to be possibly like that with very widening different opinions on is Napoleon, where I keep hearing oh. like some people have been like, it's a straight up comedy. Like this thing is insane. And other people are like, no, it's awful. <laughs> like, what is going on here? Yeah. I, I think that's also the kind of it sounds like it's like a last duel scenario of like, Ooh. is this a comedy? Like, or did really Scott really make a comedy here? It's, oh. Yeah, and I I, th- I thought the last duel was kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you just never know these days. I can't like <laughs> tone is a tricky thing to manage. But in the case of our director today, I can safely say he makes comedies. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And both of you are experts in that genre, I would say, at this point, with your <laughs> wonderful new podcast. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you can also talk about that really quick, like the, the inception of this new podcast where you're – are you covering just the year 1999? No. Comedies, so, or? we started with 1999 because we have to start somewhere. And also because um, – I think the the reason it started was is Trip and I met through also through uh, trivia spotting, and I don't know if it was at an after hours. You know, we've been talking and numerous things, and Trip kind of goes, "Oh, I've never seen like Anchorman." I was like, "Oh, you've never seen Anchorman? That's weird." And then it turned with like, "No, like I haven't seen any of these comedies from like the two thousands because yeah. I just didn't like no, like absolutely not." And I was like, "It started as a joke, being like Trip." I'm going to start a podcast just to make you watch all of these movies. Like, just to, like, purposefully um, get you to watch this. And it went from a joke to kind of then being like, you know what, actually, this actually isn't a terrible idea. And um, I pitched to Trip the idea of starting with 1999 because I think it's a turning point for studio comedies. I think you get American Pie. I think you get... Um, you know, you get the Austin Power sequel, you get Big Daddy, you have these like newer comedy stars starting to kind of come up, and then you mm-hmm. have kind of the older comedy stars. Uh, you know, we're going to talk tonight about Bowfinger, which is you know going to be on this pot uh, on our podcast too. Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy are like these elder statement statesmen, but then you have like Will Ferrell starting to really get into movies, and you're starting to oh, see yeah. some of these different kind of things, and it's the shift 
into it. So this season is 1999, mm-hmm. but uh, the plan is obviously to do them all. Like go. I, I mean, in in Ross's plan, you know, we yeah. would never finish the podcast and we'd all be dead by the time. <laughs> That's true. We get through all the movies he wants to, but I mean, it also it you know a, a lot of it is that I did. I've always been a film snob, but 1999 was my senior year of high school. And kind of that to about 2005, when I was a little out of college, was like, primo, I am a film snob, and I am not watching any of this thing that you, like, uh, you know, ruffians want to convince me is, (laughs) is funny at all. And so even a lot of them that I've seen before I, you know, was forced to watch with a chip on my shoulder and was not going to enjoy no matter what. So I think it's it's culturally that turning point, but also I think if you're going to teach me about film, about film comedy, let's start at that moment that, you know, um, I had my nose highest up in the air. And and I will say, to, to Tripp's uh, great credit, and what I always love about doing this podcast with him is when we do get to a movie that he hasn't seen and mm-hmm. I get, and I'm always pleasantly surprised. And suddenly it's like, I loved this movie. The <laughs> last from the past is like, I think the moment where I was yeah. like, Oh yes, this is awesome. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is great. A, a movie I never would have seen, but I just fell head over heels for. Yeah. Sure. Um, no, yeah, I love, I love so that too. That, yeah. It's that's the best part, I think, is that mm-hmm. you know. And look, we we've also had to watch some some stinkers, but I yeah. I think uh, to some extent there is such a fascinating mm-hmm. thing watching also a genre that right now um, mm-hmm. people I think underappreciate as a yes theatrical experience because it's like oh, I'll just rent it at home, and so yeah. those kind of studio comedies are kind of going less and less frequently into theaters. Yeah, and it's and it's crazy to think about. I mean, 1999 when I remember seeing pretty close together, Bowfinger and Dick, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just was thinking at the time like these are my kind of comedies. I love, you know, like 90 minute comedies that were just well written with yeah. memorable characters and cool people that I recognize just popping up for a scene or two or something, and mm-hmm. and yet just like making it so like just the, the writing seemed better with, with movies like those as opposed to now. But then I, I even think early in the early two thousands, there was this kind of this feeling of there is a brand of comedy that I love that starts with like, you know, David Wayne and the early work of, um, Adam McKay because of Anchorman and Wet Hot American Summer. But then there was the, I don't want to dismissive as like, oh, the bro comedy, Mm -hmm. but Todd Phillips, you know, like that brand did not click with me. I remember sitting in a theater full of people howling over the hangover. And I was just like, nah, uh, mm, not, not for me for whatever reason, you know, I mean, As you both know, comedy is very subjective, yeah. just like your response to what you think is funny. And that's that yeah. was just like those the dividing line. I remember around that time of me going, well, I know what makes me laugh. And <laughs> I don't know if it's Todd Phillips movies. And, 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 and look, the thing, too, is 1999 probably the greatest movie year of my lifetime. Yes, yes. And Good if point. you are a 
you know, 17-year-old film snob. I lived five miles from a 30-screen multiplex when those things existed. I could see most anything I wanted to. I probably saw more movies in the movie theater in 1999 and 2000 than the rest of my life. But there's still so much that I missed along there. Some for good and some for bad, you know, because you could go see several movies a week and still not bother to see you know, some of these even cultural touchstone movies. Oh yeah. And I, I mean, if we ever do get to the, the mid two thousands, which I do hope we, we will, uh, that's my high school. And I think there's something yeah. about when you're in high school, especially as a, you know, a film person or any of that stuff, you, and you get that kind of like first taste of freedom. There is something to the idea of going to the multiplex and you just start seeing oh, yeah. everything. You just start mm-hmm. seeing like, I mean, the amount of, bad comedies when we eventually get to that that i have seen in a theater because it was like well it was something to do right yeah like you're like i i live in suburbia this is just something to do you know the amount of times that i've seen like a school for scoundrels or you know mr woodcock you know or things like that where it was like yeah but that was what we did you it was a comedy you went with a couple of your friends and you're like, all right, well, let's just hope this works. Yeah. <laughs> Be- because, hope. because of my high school friends, that's me and late nineties, you know, political thrillers and legal thrillers and war movies because they turn those things out so much. Oh, These yeah. genres that just don't get made anymore. No, it's, um, I, I think some of it is, and I, I've heard people say this and it's not necessarily wrong. It's the idea of the, like you would go to the mall and the malls mm-hmm. also had multiplexes and you'd go to the mall and you'd hang out and then it's like, well, let's go see a movie. Right. Yep. Yeah. And it's like that kind of mm-hmm. natural progression. And as mall culture is also kind of dying off the idea of like, well, let's just go to the movies and just see something. Let's just, whatever mm-hmm. happens that we can get a ticket to, let's just do it. I think that's, that mindset is kind of gone. I agree. And it's kind of sad because like, I just remember, Oh, we're going to get a pizza and rent a movie or, or we're going to go to the, you know, mm-hmm. go to the mall and have some bad f- food at the food court <laughs> and then, you know, go uh, enjoy yeah. whatever's playing and not even think about it. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, in the early 2000s, I certainly saw things like slackers, you know, oh, with yeah. Jason Schwartzman and <laughs> I remember walking out of it going, oh, that was kind of a waste of time, but oh, well. It was at least at least I got to spend it with a friend and we both equally shared the pain. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. We both had. But nowadays, yeah, you just we, this was before that we could just stay at home and binge on whatever, mm-hmm. you know, and now everything is available. And in some ways, it's kind of overwhelming where yeah. I am going through certain channels and, you know, it could be Tubi, it could be Criterion. And I'm just like, well, what is the ideal viewing experience for me tonight? And I can never decide. it's so hard to make a choice i would say that the the problem with the streaming era is people have gotten so used to it but also don't realize how so many things aren't on streaming and they made it hard uh you know our next episode if i remember correctly that's releasing citing when we're recording this on thursday is drop dead gorgeous Mm -hmm. which is a movie that has had a very hard life kind of of trying to get on streaming it came up yeah. for like a hot second i think on max for a bit and is back off and it's not really available to rent you can't you rent to, it it's nowhere yeah. digitally that yeah nowhere um and dogma is another one that we're going to cover later on in the season where harvey weinstein has the rights to it and has kind of you know kept it in lock and key and so there 
while the streaming era has been great to get more people, for example, as we're talking about May-December, a movie that pre-streaming would play in like small theaters in like big mm-hmm. cities now has the ability to go to every household in America like immediately. Right. But yeah. also it allow it, it, it kind of perv- it becomes a gatekeeper in its own way by if it isn't on streaming, people just kind of like forget it exists. Yeah. That's true. And, yeah, it comes, and it comes and goes. Like that's the thing. Yeah. Ross, every week on our show, we'll talk about the box office, you know, of that week and what came out. And we'll, you know, we'll be eight episodes later. We tend to go chronologically and it's like, oh, well, you know, six weeks later, American Pie is still in the top five. But, you know, these movies had these legs that just stretched on forever versus now you see, you know, in 1999, a movie like Nyad probably would have come out and kept rolling out into theaters. And you can imagine people um, seeing that movie and talking about it. And I feel like it's the kind of movie that when we get to Thanksgiving, like people would be like, Oh, have you seen this? Like it's a movie that seems so, four quadrant in many ways that now just it dropped on netflix if you watched it that weekend you did and now it's forgotten are there word of mouth buzz movies like as much anymore like the idea of like you know something i mean we were just talking about maybe it was so. yesterday trip like six cents where it was like yeah. it comes out it does okay like the first weekend and then mm-hmm. it was like suddenly like the word of mouth just went out and it was like oh yeah that was insane you, have you heard about this movie like this movie is like and you just started seeing like the 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 box office just kind of kept growing and it kept just staying yeah. and more people were suddenly talking about it when it's on Netflix i feel like the thing happens like for the first week it comes out maybe mm-hmm. right and then it just kind of like because there's more stuff that has kind of been slopped on or whatever you forget about it it goes away yeah no things get buried mm. in the sea of streaming nowadays and it's i'm really glad you know at least apple tv didn't just Say hey, you you can only watch Killers of the Flower Moon on our oh. streaming service. Yeah. That would have been devastating to me. Thank, I would just be like, thank if, if the Oscars, if the Oscars are good for something, it's that they're <laughs> they're insisting that these movies play in theaters for a while, and I think giving that that power over to the film. I think they've learned their lesson to some degree. I would hope because mm-hmm. Coda, you know, I mean, yes, it won Best Picture, but I know people who haven't even have never seen it. No. You know, and just like, where? how can I see it? If you, you know, don't have, you have to get TV, a subscription. it doesn't exist, you know? It, yeah. yeah, and, you know, yeah. seeing Killers of the Flower Moon on, like, an IMAX screen, where it mm-hmm. such already is an epic film, and then you have it on that big of a screen, you're like, oh, right, like, this is why I go to the movies. <laughs> like, this is why the big, ex- big screen yeah. experience is such a um, fantastic thing and shouldn't just be reserved for, like, you know, uh, the Marvel movies and, you know, <laughs> like a handful of big blockbusters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I value the communal experience, especially when it comes to horror. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, the the year of Smile and Barbarian and seeing those in the theater with a crowd that just like, you know, would jump and scream and, and have it's clearly like a roller coaster experience for them. And it, and it was a blast to have that again. That's why it's like, oh, I guess I'll go see that new Scream movie because maybe I'll have the same thing happen, you know? And I think, uh, think, to answer your question, Ross, horror is the one place where you still do get that word of mouth, I think. Because you still do see these small horror movies kind of catch on and become a larger thing. Just because that's the only place where we're letting 
small non-IP movies make it into the movie theaters with any sort of regularity. Yeah. Blumhouse or A24 really have done that. And like, yeah, yeah like but, yeah. Barbarian's a great example of that. I think Barbarian mm-hmm. and Malignant are like the two kind of like recent things that I could think of where mm-hmm. it was suddenly like, have you seen this insane movie that they just like dropped yeah. into theaters? <laughs> like yeah. they, they let what's, somebody do this. <laughs> what's the, what's the sequel that was supposed to be the scariest movie ever. And people were like dying in the movie theaters. Um, oh. ter- Terrifier too. Right, oh, kind yeah. of the same sort of idea. Where, oh, yeah, that's a big word of mouthing that I yeah, refused. That's because, true. Because I was like, no, 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 this is where I draw the line. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's again where I'm like, I maybe this appeals to a certain audience and great, you know, I'm happy that it exists for them, but not for me. But you know what is for me? I would say, Mr. Frank Oz. I think with, I mean, Jim put you into into something you direct. He was a dark, dark crystal, wasn't he? Yeah. Yes, but that <clears throat> I didn't direct that movie with him. Jim directed that movie. It was his vision, and this is typical Jim. We I remember flying over to London with Jim, and he had been working on Dark Crystal for about a year or two before I came on board. You were famous for directing Little Shop of Horrors. I am? Okay, uh, it's a cult classic uh, from 1986, 87? Yeah, okay. around there. 25th anniversary of the movies coming out. There's a new ending on the end. Yes. Okay. Well, actually, it's the old ending, the original ending that... It's not the that, ending I saw. No, it's not the ending you I saw. I saw it in the theater. had a happy ending when I it saw it. It had a happy ending, mm-hmm. but the original ending, which is about a million dollars worth of, of work and uh, by Richard Conway, was excised about 25 years ago because the scores were so low that Warners would not release the movie because... When they did, like, market testing, like when they showed it to audiences. And and actually, I didn't need the market testing. I was there at the San Jose screening, and they loved the show until we killed the two stars. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Isn't that weird? Like, Foz, like Frank Oz? I never put that together before. Fozzie. Yeah. Interesting. He's many, many a great Muppet is Frank Oz. Yes, he is. Oh, yeah. Greatest. Miss Piggy, Cookie Monster, Yoda. Sam the Um, Eagle. Grover. Yeah. That's right. Bert. Animal. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Animal's my favorite. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm uh, a huge fan of The Who, so, like, he's Keith Moon. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's what animal is he's just yeah. keen food. And I was like, great awesome love it if you've ever come across me in real life i am some sort of bizarre amalgam of winnie the pooh and fozzie the bear and so like it was always <laughs> my um my spirit animal there was uh was fozzie for sure see that's 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 much better than where i realized when there was like the oh what muppet are you it's like i want to say other muppets but i'm like i know i'm scooter somehow <laughs> like you just know and you're like yeah. oh god i'm scooter aren't i like i don't want to be scooter but like that's- nobody ever wants to be a scooter you are a scooter that's just yeah. how this is but ross every podcast needs its scooter so that's why that's we true. keep you around to keep you know my bad jokes in in line <laughs> i think it's usually oh, the yeah. other way around <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you are. I can see a little fuzzy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But I mean, uh, I, 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 first, I, I guess I agree to some degree that um, my partner Sharon says I sound like Kermit the Frog, mm-hmm. and I'm like, okay, that's a compliment to me. I love Kermit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that's not a bad thing. Um, yeah. And especially since I'd mean, 
I, I, I would I would think that one of the first vinyl records I played was the Muppet movie soundtrack. Oh, yeah. And like that that alone, just Paul Williams' songs in that movie are just tremendous. They are. You know? <laughs> Paul Williams is one of the most under I, I think to some extent underappreciated elements of any of the Muppets things is that those songs that he wrote, whether it was for mm-hmm. the Muppet movie or for like Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas or you know other things he's the songs are just so good they're so good it's it's you know i don't know if the muppet without rainbow connection i that's such an integral part of it it's so good and at some point down the road i do want to do like a jim henson special because mm-hmm. he's a special person yes he uh, is. In, so, in so many ways and you know one could argue like oh are they going to start with dark crystal because frank oz did co-direct it mm-hmm. well i'm gonna hold off on that I, I i at some point down the road i'm going to do an entire episode dedicated to hansen and 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 you know the world of the muppet the muppet mm-hmm. verse perhaps yeah. yeah but i mean we can certainly start with what is considered Frank Oz's first solo effort mm-hmm. uh, because it's, it's interesting to hear. He is very candid. If you check out some interviews or listen to him, I listened to him t- t- uh, on a podcast with Mike Berbiglia, Mark, Mike Berbiglia, a last name that I always have trouble saying. Um, and it was, it was very interesting to hear how honest and sometimes brutally honest Frank Oz could be. And, and, Hearing him talk about like you know being inexperienced and not necessarily w- getting along with everybody on Muppets Take Manhattan and a lot of other people involved with that film said the same thing like it was it was a bit of a challenge in in a lot of ways for him to just suddenly start directing mm-hmm. although Jim Henson was like you really should direct <laughs> you know on your own because you're great and well and he always wanted to be a director like he's always kind of said that he fell into puppetry. Um, almost by mistake, and that while he loved it, like if he had chosen his path, he wanted to direct theater and film. So yes, it seems yes. natural that he would kind of take it over, and that you know, like a TV star, their first directing credit is maybe an episode of their TV show that he would just take on the third of the Muppet movies. Yeah, I mean he he joins the Muppets very young. I mean mm-hmm. he's nineteen. Mm-hmm when he starts working with Jim Henson. So it, it kind of is like just natural thing. And, you know, the first several movies he does, I mean, has have puppets in it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like they, yeah, his parents, his parents were puppeteers. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, it it would make sense. Like, Oh, I've, I've learned that craft from them. And you could see that transitioning well into the world of theater. Uh, and then, of course, you know, if you're doing musical theater, even better for you know w- where he's landing up with with his first two movies. And I think, you know, it's it's appropriate to start with Muppets Take Manhattan as a, like sort of a bridge, mm-hmm. you know, between his his early talents and obviously being a Muppet, um, you know, a voice of many Muppets, and then transitioning over into directing. But it, like I said, it wasn't it it wasn't easy for him. Uh, I think there were a couple of compromises here and there, but I don't know. I this it's always hard for me to just say like, oh, I mean the the, the first three Muppet movies are are kind of like 
hard for me to just say this one is at my absolute favorite. Although nostalgia just informs the forms me that Muppet movie will always be my favorite. Yeah, uh, and I'm the but opposite. There's so many Jim. great things. Like, yeah. so I, I was a huge Muppet fan as a kid. Um, this is my favorite of that trilogy, and oh, this wild. Is okay, maybe one of my favorite. Part of it, I think, is because this is the one I had on VHS as a kid. Sure. So, like, this is the one that I watched. And I loved musical theater and anything Broadway-centered. So I loved that side of things. But, like, I, I'll i agree with you. I think the Muppet movie is their masterpiece. But, like, this is the one that I find myself turning on. I think part of it is because it's the most emotional of any mm-hmm. of the Muppet movies. Like, it's rooted in an emotional journey that you don't get, maybe, from some of those other early films um, in there. I was taken aback a little bit more realizing how sad it is when, when they oh. all split up oh, and go yeah. their separate ways. And then saying Kermit goodbye, gets hit, saying Kermit goodbye gets hit is the cab. first time I ever remember crying during a movie like that is it's, sure. it's so hard. And then the journey of Kermit and the amnesia and that they don't really know him anymore. And then the way that that pays off and that phenomenal huge closing ceremony like it's just um to to me this is what i want from the muppets and i am about as huge of a muppet fan as you can get i have a funko pop of jim henson sitting on my desk Um, i've always just been obsessed with the muppets um i think in many ways the Muppets and Jim Henson are kind of like my spiritual guide, right? If we can all just embrace the weirdos and be kind to each other, that that's all you really need in life. And so to me, there's something about this is just the apex of who Jim Henson and Frank Oz were. Yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah I agree with that. Mm-hmm. It, it's a very interesting thing because to some extent, it's kind of like the reverse of the Muppet movie, right? The Muppet movie, the whole idea is getting the Muppets together, right? Yeah. It's getting all of them together, and then we're going to go the, – the classic where the Muppets always do the best is when it's – we got to put on a show. We we got to like get everything together, and the chaos has to happen. And this movie is actually – we start with they have a show, and then they break up. Yeah. And to have a Muppet movie where for a good chunk of this movie, they're not together. They're all separate. Mm-hmm. And it's not until like towards the very end where they do come back together. It is kind of a bold choice to do because some of what makes the Muppets really great is those kind of interactions between the chaos. Mm-hmm. It's it's the insane you know world that is surrounding them. And so when you have this movie where they do the you know saying goodbye and they do all leave, it, it is that you do feel a shift even in the movie because there is something missing and it's that community and you miss it until it all comes back and it makes you appreciate that ending even more yeah Yeah. i completely agree and that saying goodbye is definitely the best song i mean watching it again i was like oh if only paul williams had came back (laughs) but i love this this score there i think there's a lot of really great um i think the, the score is not appreciated as much as maybe it should be in here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think together again is such a great song also. Yeah. And oh, sure. you can't take no for an answer. There's some, but yeah, saying goodbye is the best. It also fascinated me watching it that um, like it's Frank Oz's first film and they kind of throw him in the deep end here because I think technically this film is a lot 
harder than some of the other Muppet movies because the location filming that they have to do here oh, right. with like, yeah. we're going to take the Muppets to the empire state building and into Sardis and into this Broadway theater. And like, you know, it's not, you see, I'm sure they built a whole lot of sets, but it's also, you can't get away from the fact that they are in this actual real location. Yeah. Um, they're in central park for, you know, some of the best stuff of the movie. And every Muppet movie always tries to kind of like, top the last one in terms of technicality, mm-hmm. right? It was like the classic example was like the Muppet movie. We show Kermit riding a bike, right? Yeah. And then the great Muppet, it was like, now we'll have all of them riding bikes. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was like, you thought the one thing was hard. Let's now do all the Muppets riding bikes. And you're like, oh yeah. my God. Um, mm-hmm. There is a, yeah, there are a lot in Manhattan, a lot filming around. Um, mm-hmm. And it is a lot of kind of this, interesting element to it the other interesting thing about this is it sounds like there was a lot more famous people that were supposed to do cameos that ended up somehow not working out dustin hoffman yeah dustin (laughs) hoffman was supposed to do like a robert evans-esque uh broadway producer and then thought it would be insulting to robert evans and decided to drop it. Um, <laughs> but then he sort of did an impression and wagged the dog, yeah, kind of. By 1997, <laughs> I guess it was fine. Um, yeah. You know, he, uh, but this one has like the least kind of to some extent, even the main, usually the main human characters are still somewhat known. And mm-hmm. the, the two main, or the main human characters in this aren't as big of names as you're coming off of having like Charles Grodin and Diana Rigg. And now it's, you know, uh, okay, I mean, it, you, know, you get Dabney Coleman and Gregory Hines, which is which is great, and Liza Minnelli, but it's definitely not as, like, star-studded as other ones. It really does kind of put the focus more on the Muppets. I also love the fact that Frank Oz cast John Landis in a, in a brief cameo, too. That's, yes. that's kind of funny, given that how many times Frank Oz would cameo in his movies. And, of course, John Landis gets to say, a frog in an afro. <laughs> this movie's really funny at times. I mean, oh, like yeah. we're talking about how melancholy it is, yeah. but good lord! Like oh. anytime Kermit has to go out and try and promote Manhattan Melodies, oh. you know, and comes up with these little schemes and stuff, and him just acting like uh, that <laughs> really high energy, like insane uh, manic promoter of oh. sorts yeah in that in that mm-hmm. wig and everything it's so funny oh do you, know, do you know how often i've said you've given her the huggies like just <laughs> from this scene that that gregory hines scene is brilliant yeah. i think too that, oh, the way that it captures I, the between just the like all of his schemes i mean you get another muppet man kind of thing right where it's they're in a trench coat you know <laughs> it's all muppets just on top of each other which is always great but like even when you get to the amnesia thing Mm-hmm. It's like Kermit just somehow ends up at an advertising agency that's like the blandest thing that you can imagine. And just him, just like they all have similar names. They're all just kind of like walking <laughs> around. It's, it is such a really funny, you know, thing to do of him. It's also the one time, maybe in a movie, that you hear Kermit, although obviously he's not himself in that moment, be mean. Mm-hmm. Like actually mean to to, to Miss Picky, yeah. <laughs> really mean, and so it's um it's a it's a very intri- it, there's so many just great gags about using the Muppets mm-hmm. and using Manhattan also especially. Yeah, yeah and uh, I'd never seen her. In, I don't know if I'd ever seen her in anything else, but uh, 
Juliana Donald as Jenny is so charming. She is so good. Yeah, she didn't really have much of a career. Um, yeah. Every time I watch this movie, I feel like I look it up, like hoping that maybe like there's a lost career there, and it's not. But I mean, yeah, she's, and, unfortunately you know, not. It's not the movie stars, but she and Lonnie Price, who plays the producer kid, um, are both so great. Oh, and yeah. They are much more complex humans, though, than some of the other Muppet movies let them be, right? That um, until maybe you get to like Muppet Christmas Carol with Michael Caine, but um, yeah. you see of those three movies, like the humans are an integral part of the emotional journey of this movie versus just there for the comic relief parts. And as a Man. person who grew up on the Muppet Babies cartoons, mm-hmm. I can greatly appreciate this movie for helping create Muppet Babies, yeah. which was a big part of my childhood as well. That song is so catchy, good lord. Yeah. Part of me doesn't like part of me doesn't want to hear it because I'm just going to be like, "Oh gosh, it's just going to yeah. play in my head over and over again." <laughs> <laughs> it's so cheesy and sweet and silly. I love it. Um, it's a great movie, actually. The more I think about it, the more I appreciate it over time. And yeah, I just, Mm -hmm. uh, I love those first three Muppet. I mean, I think I like the majority of the Muppet movies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I mean, to varying degrees. This is, I mean, this like concludes the kind of like, you know, obviously this is the last one Henson like fully, Mm -hmm. fully, Mm -hmm. Jim Henson fully participates in. But then, like, after this, like, when I was growing up, it was, like, for two movies, it was the, let's put the Muppets just in a, like, as a theatrical troupe, like, doing these yeah. adaptations, which really they should do more of, because Christmas Carol and Muppet Treasure Island are great. They're, they're really fun. And yeah. you just use this idea of, like, I think it's always a constant internet meme of, like, cast a movie, but with Muppets. Like, cast the story, but with Muppets. <laughs> Who's the one, you know, like, human character that remains human, and then Muppets are everyone else. We we should also add that Frank Oz does have a co-directing credit on one more Muppet film, um, which is the Muppet Vision 3D at Disneyland and Disney World, which, um, which is... I, I believe Whoa. he might have taken over after um, Henson passed away, um, and is still there, and I saw it last yeah, it year. Is might be one of the great Muppet films of all time. And uh, so there is a a lot there that I think. It's still one of the best 3D things, like even still at Disney. It's still really good how they use the 3D and it is very funny Mm -hmm. and it's such an enjoyable thing. And I've gone to Disney World several times in my life in Mm -hmm. Florida and I always make a point of still going to Muppet Vision 3D because it's just... It's still funny. It still mm-hmm. works so well. It is. So, yeah. Well, I know where I need to take a vacation next year. Absolutely. Too. Oh, my Lord. Yes. That sounds wonderful. Do it now because my fear is always that they're about to shut it down. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I keep thinking, I'm like, oh, Disney's going to think, like, who's going to go to this anymore? They <laughs> shut down the gift shop, which broke my yeah. heart last time I was mm-hmm. there. But, uh, yeah. yeah. The gift shop at that at this point, the last time I was there, like a couple years ago, it mm-hmm. didn't really have, like, any Muppet stuff. Like, no. It was essentially a gift shop that just happened to be next to Muppet they, Vision. They have turned the pizza place right there, though, into uh, Pizza Rizzo. Rizzo so. yeah. yeah. So that's good. I was trying to think of a smooth transition, especially when Trip mentioned Michael Caine. I was like, oh, it's so close. It's no, just. But, yeah. ah! 
Yeah, I was just like, oh, we could have just we could have just went right to it. But hey, you know, Frank Oz is really good at directing with puppets. Uh, yes, and he's also good at directing musical numbers. Yes, he is. And I think we're about to discover what he's truly capable of (laughs) by adapting a Broadway hit, a uh, Roger Corman classic known as Little Shop of Horrors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A banger. This is is where the theater person, though, in me goes, it was off-Broadway. Oh, oh, yes. It was a small show. Mm -hmm. It it didn't didn't come to Broadway until decades That's right. You're absolutely correct. Yes. Thank you for correcting me because that is important to note because it it just felt like he wanted to steer away from the flashiness and and like, you know, let's have a big elaborate crane shot a la West Side Story or something, you know? Mm -hmm. He he sort of made it a, a little bit more low key of an approach to the kind of outlandishness that that we are kind of used to with when it comes to musicals. This was more about the relationships, particularly between Audrey and Seymour played Mm -hmm. just so wonderfully by Ellen Green and Rick Moranis here. I mean, going back to this again, I was just like, this is as good of a musical that I've ever seen in my life. And I felt that way when I was young, when I first saw this, I mean, I went to see it mainly because Oh my God, Steve Martin, Bill Murray, John Candy are all in this movie. And of course, Rick Moranis, who I knew from SCTV. This is like a dream come true. I mean, a couple of them have very small parts. But hey, uh, I I didn't know that Steve Martin actually had dark hair or could have dark hair or even dye his hair dark at the time. But hey, this is wonderful. And then, you know, getting to experience these songs uh, and just... Totally being on board with every choice made throughout this entire movie. It is so close. To, I mean, we could talk about the ending, obviously, and how it changed. But as, mm-hmm. as it stands, it is so damn good. And I, I, it's just so rewatchable. I have no issues with Little Shop of Horrors whatsoever. You know, I, I've worked in the theater a lot of my life. And I have seen so many productions of Little Shop of Horrors Aww. from high schools to huge, wonderful professional productions. No production on stage has ever quite captured what the movie does. And I think that's just because this has to be a movie more than it has to be a stage show because Frank Oz is able to really poke fun at the fifties style of it in a way that you can't get on stage no matter how good you are, but he's a master of tone 
Frank Oz knows how to balance what's going on so perfectly. And I think this might be his masterpiece in that way of just making it a satire, but also keeping the human qualities of these characters alive throughout. And then also dealing with just the puppetry and the special effects and how big this movie gets. Uh, Yeah. I mean, this, this is my favorite musical, like in general, it's like this and Sweeney Todd are basically like 1A and 1B for me. And ever since I was a kid and I went to my summer camp, shout out to Eisner Camp in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. And my first summer there, the unit ahead of me did Little Shop of Horrors as their like session play musical. And I was like, there's a musical about a man-eating plant. This is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. Um, it is unreal to me rewatching this and like 10 minutes in. The first two numbers, and I was getting chills. Yeah. I was just like singing mm-hmm. along at points, and I was like, "This is a masterpiece! Like this just works." The problem always, usually, is with productions of Seymour, is many a time they cast somebody who is generally good looking, and they just put glasses oh. on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, again, there's a recent production that's currently still running off Broadway right now here in New York City. When it opened, it was Jonathan Groff, who I love Jonathan Groff, and he was actually very good at Seymour. But Jonathan Groff is a, objectively a very handsome man, and they just put glasses on him. And you're like, but you're not Seymour. You look at Rick, uh, like Rick Moranis in this movie, everything is perfect. He is, you know, he, you heart goes out to this guy who <laughs> genuinely seems like the world has just absolutely dumped on him. And Vincent Gardinia is amazing Bushnick and Ellen Green, who they took from the stage show, right. Mm -hmm. Is, is absolutely perfect as Audrey. And you have all these together with a puppetry for Audrey too. That is unreal. How well that's done. It is so good. Every, just the small movements and how that plant, you know, especially when it gets bigger, how it moves and interacts with the space is it's amazing. And they filmed it like on the same stages that they filmed 007 movies. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. I mean, it's, it is to me, it's as good of a movie musical as you can get because it still feels like on a soundstage, like that kind of theatricality in some mm-hmm. respects, like that block clearly looks like a soundstage, but it still feels so expansive. It still feels like a movie. It feels like only a movie could do it in this way. Yeah. And l- talk about the voice work of Le- Levi Stubbs and oh. just the, I mean, the singing voice. Uh, I mean, just it's, it's pretty wild too, because, you know, I was a huge fan of my parents' record collections and they had a lot of Motown and obviously mm-hmm. I knew who the four tops was, but I, I couldn't place like, you know, when I saw Little Shop Wars, I wouldn't have gone, oh, I know that voice. I know that. I mean, he just makes it completely unique in, in everything that he does with that with that voice work. It's just so memorable to where even, I think, what, how old was I? Maybe eight or nine when I saw this? I actually had nightmares about Audrey 2 eating me. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. it's that effective. Yeah. Imagine <laughs> if they kept the original ending in there. How many more nightmares? You oh, have? sure. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. He, he, he's coming to get us. You know, I mean, that's... Oh. So good. That song is so good too. (laughs) It was the it was the first movie I rewatched getting ready for this podcast, mostly because about a month ago, uh, took my 
kids to go see a production of it on stage and they both immediately were hooked on it like yeah. they're 13 and 9 they were like yes this is awesome but my 9-year-old daughter then wanted to I told her that the movie was really good but that it had the happier ending and she was like well I want to see that and so a I will say like it was the first movie I rewatched for this podcast and I think it's remained the bar that Frank Oz never quite went over. Like, I still think it's his best film, probably. Although I love most of these movies almost as much. But um, the second thing is, like, even I know and music theater purists will get mad that they changed the ending. But if you're going to change the ending, they did it in such the right way here that the new song, Mean Green Mother from Outer Space, is just a wonderful song, and it captures it great. And it still keeps that little bit of cynicism at the end with the, you know, little Audrey 2 in the house. But um, I do. I love everything about this movie. Yeah, and the final the final line of of Audrey too. When I was a kid, I was like, yeah. "Whoa, cool!" <laughs> <laughs> it's. I think even in and you can correct me if I'm wrong because I was gonna re- for this I watched the theatrical cut because I was like, mm-hmm. "Let's be real here. This is what the the whole point is. What you know, he actually released. I do yeah. have the Blu-ray that has the director's cut, which mm-hmm. has that original ending. I think even in that one, they had Mean Green Mother from Outer Space in there. I think it's just then what okay. happened. Like, it, okay. it seems like what they did was is they still put it in there, even with the Audrey dying and the feeding to the plant and mm-hmm. Seymour, you know. But the interesting thing seems to be that Jim Belushi is not – his part is played by somebody else, which is really weird. Yeah. Oh, I forgot about that, actually. Yeah, yeah Jim yeah. Belushi's, like – cameo it seems like maybe when they were redoing it the actor that they had maybe he wasn't available or whatever but they it's then jim belushi in the theatrical cut of the like the guy with the clippings and you know i want to you know do that i mean yeah as the musical theater person that i am that original cynical ending is so good and it's also really good on stage and that song don't feed the plants is Mm -hmm. a fantastic song and Mm -hmm. such a great ending but the difference is, and, and my understanding of why they also decided to change it was, it's one thing on stage when you do it and then everyone gets to take a bow. It's another thing to do it in a movie where nobody takes a bow, right? Yeah. And then it's just mm-hmm. like you're left with that plant coming through like the, the movie screen just like laughing maniacally. <laughs> <laughs> like, and then it's like, all right, now go back into the world. And you're like, oh, God. <laughs> like, I don't know how I feel. Ross. Ross, the actor who Belushi replaced is actually Paul Dooley played that. That's part. it. Oh. He's phenomenal always. Yeah, and yeah, he was. Yeah. He, he couldn't get back for the reshoot for whatever reason. So, yeah, um, yeah. the The original ending. I mean, look, it's it's so good, and it's also expensive. Like you watch yeah. it, and you're like, they spent a lot of money on like those plants, like destroying New York, and you know, coming out of the water and going up the, you know the the uh, the Statue of Liberty and it's mm-hmm. it's elaborate it's very well done and I can only imagine like the studio coming to Frank Oz being like yeah well, you need to cut all of that <laughs> it's like, oh what? yeah <laughs> I feel like he's had so many bummer moments like that throughout his directorial career where they're like no you got to mm-hmm. change this or you got to do that differently uh, yeah. but it, it's it's hearing him talk about his process though. I don't know if I've heard other directors say this, and I'm I'm sure it's true though. I'm sure people like 
Uh, I mean, probably someone like Kevin Smith just did like a three hour cut of dogma and just showed it to people and was like, okay, what should, what needs to come out? And Frank Oz would do that with almost all of his movies. Like originally mm-hmm. Bowfinger was two and a half hours, three hours long or something, which is just wild to think about. I'm like, how could that happen? But he just would put everything in it and see what, how people would respond, even like, you know, people close to him or whatever. And like, just throw it all up there and then decide later. It's so amazing because so many of his movies feel like there's no meat on the bones as it is like that. They are just as like these perfectly constructed little, you know, puzzle boxes of movies that I can't imagine you adding or subtracting from most of them. But I wonder if that's like the comedy thing, right? It's like you mm. film mm-hmm. tons of different things. I mean, look, Apatow. And oh, Anchorman. All those. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's like you film so much to see what works. And then what it sounds like what Frank Oz probably did was like, okay, what's the best that we can like, Okay, so now I got this. Now let me shave it and shave it mm-hmm. and shave it to really what are the best things yeah, that we can do. That's what it seems like. But but more than I think even a lot of other comedies that he made, and maybe this is more down the road as we start talking about, you know, his more straight out comedies, is that they are story driven more than a lot of these other movies. Yes. Right? That like your dirty rotten scoundrels, your in and outs, your bow fingers have very strict plots that they follow step by step by step that I can't imagine having this bloat on them that you would get lost in there. Well, and even with this adaptation of Little Shop of Horrors, right? He cuts songs. Like, mm-hmm. even in whichever version you watch, he cuts songs and he basically yeah. is like, look, we're going to get to the point, right? We don't need to have like the the misdirect. We don't need to have like the Mushnick and Son song. Like, <laughs> fine, it's great on a musical stage where you know I have to fill two to two and a half hours. I'm giving this to like ninety minutes. Like, get to the point, right? Get in, get out, and that kind of focusing, even of what is already a very great musical, <laughs> has it. This moves so well and just goes quick and goes. You know, the pacing just works so well in this movie. Mm-hmm. And it established a uh, a great relationship with Steve Martin. I mean, yes. I, they, the, technically, the first time they met or worked together was on Muppet Movie, which to me, when I was a kid, that might have been like that, that's my earliest memory of laughing really hard at someone was Steve Martin mm-hmm. in the Muppet Movie as the waiter. Uh, and oh, ju- and okay. then and then from there, just like going, okay, whoever that guy is, I just want to follow whatever he does. And then my dad's like, oh, here, check out this record album, and he's wearing bunny ears on the cover <laughs> of it. And I listened to that, and that's my first exposure to co- live comedy. So it, it makes sense that I have like a real strong connection yeah. to Steve Martin mm-hmm. as a comedic performer. And when I saw this, I was just in heaven. You know, it's yeah. him playing the dentist, and that musical number is just. Oh, oh, so perfect. It's so good. And that seed, I mean, and also, again, other uses of like puppetry, that seed that shot, that part of the song that shot from inside a mouth. <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, just the way that that's done. And even just talking about this now, the dance move that he does when he go after coming out of the closet with the shrine. And it like this like kind of like kick move and then like shiv like kind of like scoots then over to like I it's in my head. I'm like, I can see that. He's so good in that movie. 
He's also really good in another movie. Well, maybe yeah. two two more movies actually. <laughs> yeah, that Frank Oz has made. Actually, three more. Oh wait, three. Yeah, he's in. Oh three yes, more, but duh. <laughs> the, the but, one know, that I we said good. We said good in two others. So you know, yes. look. <laughs> there's there's oh well, yeah there's one more that I like more than most people I guess. But anyway, <laughs> yes. Um, let's talk about Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, uh, originally mm-hmm. meant for Mick Jagger and David Bowie. Fascinating. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> no, originally, originally made with David Niven and uh, Marlon Brando in the 60s. Oh, that's right. right. Bedroom, yeah. bed, bedtime story, bedroom story, bedtime, something like bedtime that. Bedtime story, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so. which I, I'm not, I don't know. I just, I don't want, I don't know if I need to see that or the horrible remake of this that came out mm-hmm. with Anne Hathaway uh, and Rebel Wilson, right? Yes. Uh, yes. No. Yeah, I don't think I need to see that. Um, <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> no, I, I have. I saw it on an airplane. Oh, um, that's Anne Hathaway's. Anne Hathaway's really good, but that's about it. I yeah, she's always. Hathaway. Yeah, she's always good. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I love uh, Glenn Headley. Uh, yes. So much. She is so phenomenal in this movie. Yeah, this oh, practically practically stealing the show, but I I, I think, think she does. Yeah, I think. Oh, gosh, everybody is working at the top of their game, and I, I was watching this again, thinking, why does this work so well? I, I I mean, is it because you have such an esteemed, beloved, talented actor like Michael Caine not playing it for laughs mm-hmm. in the traditional sense? He's taking it seriously, and that's what makes it so funny. Um, or is it just like you get the right pairing of two sort of contrasting approaches to comedy and it just like, this is uh, talk about chemistry between the two of them. It's just uh, like earth shattering as I'm watching this. I'm just like, wow, this, you, you don't make comedies like this anymore and have them work on a script level, uh, in terms of his choices as a director, because he's not a flashy director or anything. He just no. knows exactly how to frame a scene and where to put the camera and where to put the people he, he in does. the frame. And I think this comes from all of his work with the Muppets also, and that puppeteer's yes. eye, because he has this, right, when you're working with the Muppets, you can't really move the camera a whole lot, right? You can't cut. So he grew up in this, we're going to put the camera down and then we're going to trust the performers to really fill the frame, right? And if you watch those clips of Henson and Oz as like Bert and Ernie, and they would just riff for 20 minutes and it is amazing to watch. right? Mm. So that's what he does in his movies is it's like, we're going to figure out how to frame this. And then he trusts his performers so much to just let it all out. And he's cast these movies perfectly and he trusts his performers and he brings out the best, I think in them so much in all of his movies, but especially this, like I think Michael Caine and Steve Martin, this is some of their funniest work in movies overall. Can two con men survive in a town really made for one? Really? We find a woman, set a price, and the first man to extract the correct amount from her wins. Wish me luck. Let the contest begin. If I lose, I'll leave. If I win, you leave. To prove once and for all who is the dirtiest. The rottenest. Do you feel this? The sleaziest, the sneakiest, the phoniest, Thank you, your highness. the trickiest, 
Don't you ever have an emotion that originates above the waist? No! The all-time champion of dirty, rotten scouts. Sure, and I think also, this movie walks a very fine line. Like, there's a lot of this movie that it's like you're kind of like, I can't believe this works. I can't believe everything with Ruprecht works. And Mm -hmm. yet, every moment that Steve Martin is doing Ruprecht, it's so funny. And there's so many small jokes even within when he's doing all of that. And it's and it's like this shouldn't work, but it does. This movie is like the way that these two men treat women is horrible. Absolutely. And yet, <laughs> and yet the reason this movie works and isn't like a thing that you work like look back on and go, oh, this is really bad, mm-hmm. is because the joke is on them in the end. The joke mm-hmm. is is that this woman was able to absolutely completely beat them so easily. Beat them at their own game. Of, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because they are so blind and stupid and can't think for a second that this jackal could be a woman. It's got to be, you know, Michael Caine is convinced that this jackal must be Steve Martin. <laughs> like, yeah. that's it, right? This guy who's doing like little small time, you know, <laughs> griffs on a train, you know, must be, it must be him. But it, it's a movie, it's the tone just works so well. And yeah, the chemistry between all three of them yes. is supernova. It, it's just, I wish they actually did more movies together. Yeah, and and Michael Caine, I think, has even said, like, one of the funniest things he's ever done was hit, the, the scene where he's hitting Steve Martin's <laughs> legs while he's in the wheelchair over oh. and over again. And, and watching that again, I'm like, yeah, that's like a perfect comedy set piece in every way. It's the it's the gift of Frank Oz too that you know Ross and I watch a lot of comedies that are just mean right where you can tell they are punching down at these characters and no way in any Frank Oz movie do you ever not believe that he loves every character in all of these movies no matter even, who even they if they're are despicable or yeah. what they're doing yeah. which is why I feel like so much. You know, had anyone else made this with Ruprecht and the guy in the wheelchair, and then this carries on to like to what about Bob and In and Out and Bowfinger? So many of these movies in anyone else's hands, you can see where oh, this is just be- going to become a mean movie, and it never does with Frank Oz because he loves everyone in these movies so much. He takes great delight, I think, especially in this, like in the grift. Mm-hmm. I think he just finds like the inherent idea that this that somehow this works. Like that these that some of these are so ludicrous in, in the best ways, and it's like, but somehow it works. It's like you could just imagine like him off screen just going like, "I can't believe they fell for it. <laughs> like, I can't believe this works." <laughs> like that's kind of the joy of it. The movie is also it's a live action Muppet movie, isn't it? Yes, I mean, more or less. Steve Martin and Michael Caine are Burton Ernie or Fozzie and Kermit or any sort of combination that he loved um, so much, and so he gets that dynamic so well too. Oh yeah, Steve Martin and the physical comedy that Steve Martin is doing in this because he's mm-hmm. the one doing the physical comedy. It's not so much Michael Caine; it's yeah. it's Steve Martin and Steve Martin. The physical comedy in this movie is so – he knew in many of the stuff that he does with Steve Martin exactly how to use him so well. And he yep. uses Steve Martin's physical comedy in all of the best ways. The 
you know, from, again, everything with Ruprecht to when he's, like, crawling on the ground to get up to the stairs because he has to still pretend that he's <laughs> he's in the wheelchair. And they're dancing. And he's, like, trying to, like, he's at the door and he's, like, trying to, like, come in. But you pair that with the Michael Caine sophistication. And you, co- you compare it with this kind of, like, suave, you know, genius that Michael Caine is somehow able to you know, kind of play these games just with Steve Martin as well of these really smart ways that he decides to twist them. It, yeah, and and again, then you you add in, you know, everything with Glenn H- uh, Headley, and she's just perfect. Perfect foil for both of them. Yeah, I, I know I've seen her in other things, but this is what I'll probably always remember her for. You know, I just yeah. think she's she really does... And you're you're up against some heavyweights here, you know, <laughs> like a comedic genius and, and you know, like a, a, a well-established actor who has been doing it for a very long time at this point. And some both of them we recognize and love, and yet she just brings it all to this to this performance. And yeah, I think I think the reason why I responded to this, you know, younger so much is too is because of Steve Martin gets to sort of harken back a little bit to. The, the kind of humor he did in The Jerk, you know, especially as Ruprecht, yeah, but then, yeah. like, when he's trying to... It, like, it just... He's doing sort of the thing he did with, you know, I can... Like, I can dance the way he does in The Jerk, and he <laughs> starts walking towards her. Come to me, yeah. Freddy! Come to me! <laughs> and he's just trying to... Oh. I'm walking! <laughs> you know, oh all that God. is just so wonderful. I mean, everything about this movie works to where I'm like, I just don't want to see anybody try this kind of... Like, try to remake this, even no, if, you know... No. It's, it's just... It's great. Glenn, Glenn Headley, as I'm now just figuring out, uh, born in the town right next to where I'm from. She's Aww. born in New London, Connecticut. So, uh, you know, shout out to Southeastern Connecticut right there. She's she's great. I forgot she was in Dick Tracy, too. So, I mean, she's... Oh, that's, that's, that's right. That's what I always yeah. think of her. That yeah. she, and that was a formative movie for me. And, sure. Uh, I love her as Tess Trueheart. And a Steppenwolf Ensemble member, be, uh, an early Steppenwolf member. She was married to John Malkovich for a long time. And, oh, yeah. Yes, I think they so get she's a really great stage actress, you know, who oh, I don't think I I always quite got the the film work that uh, she deserved. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Wow. So now we have a very interesting <laughs> comedy to get to, because for me, it's very interesting to talk about for a lot of reasons. But I'm going to start with the fact that I saw this opening night with a packed house in Calumet City, Illinois. And everyone in the crowd was just roaring. Like a lot of people, mm-hmm. a lot of people sort of cite as like like the there's something about Mary theatrical experiences being like, oh my god, everybody was laughing at everything, and we missed mm-hmm. jokes because people were laughing so hard. And that was really the case for What About Bob when I first saw That's this. That's fascinating. I know, right? <laughs> so of course, at the time, like yeah, I agreed with them, and I said, oh, oh, dad, oh. Sean, whoever I was with, um, I, I, this is like a new comedy classic. Bill Murray's so great. Um, now I have issues. <laughs> okay. I mean, not, not like to an, a degree that takes away from like me enjoying this fully. Cause there are, I mean, God, I mean, Bill Murray and Richard Dreyfus sort of infamously now hated each other. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah. On set. And Frank Oz was like, Oh great. That'll actually help the movie. 
um, so clearly there is tension on set, and that's certainly not the first time we'll hear about that. But it's just, I watch it now, and I'm just like, God, I know this is a comedy, but this family is so dumb. They're so dumb for finding Bob <laughs> yeah. to be so charming. I just don't. Ugh, it actually drives Richard me nuts. Richard Dreyfus is the problem for this movie, at least partially for me, is that I keep saying they go like, Richard Dreyfus has points here. Like, yes. yes, this this man should not be let anywhere near his family. He has been a patient for one day, fakes a suicide, like gets finds out where he is and is stalking him. Like this is a, the beginning of a horror movie. Yeah. <laughs> Call the police at this point. But, <laughs> yeah. but it's a Frank. But it's a Frank Oz movie. So yes. ev- everyone is always correct in a Frank Oz movie, right? Because Bob is not a threat to anyone, and Bob is so lovable. And you also understand why Bob needs Leo so much in his life right now, and so you can see where Frank Oz has that compassion for both of these characters. And it's a battle of two people who are a hundred percent right in their own minds, Mm. um, going at each other. But boundaries, everybody boundaries. boundaries. I agree. Like, yes, but (laughs) I know, I know. Yeah. I I will say this is a movie that I came to later in life. I did not see it as a kid. It is a like foundational film for my wife. And so we watched it this morning. The nine-year-old watched it with us. The three of us were cracking up so much that it holds up, I think, really well. Um, can we mention, this is the second movie in a row that Frank Oz made that is shot by Michael Ballhouse. Oh, right. Martin Scorsese's. I, yeah. And this movie is also edited by Anne V. Coates. The editor of Lawrence of Arabia. Yep. Like, it this feels yeah, so this is nuts. tight. Like, it's, I know, making these just studio comedies in the early 90s. Well, he also, like, and I think Blank Check talked a little bit about this recently because it had to tie into their uh, Fincher series. It, the, around this time, he also had, was possibly going to do The Curious Case of Benjamin Button with Martin mm-hmm. Short. Yeah. He was possibly going to do Mermaids. Um, uh-huh. And that fell through. Supposedly. He didn't get along. He didn't get along with Cher. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, the, again, also, you know, the, Frank Oz also career littered with um, very noted difficult performers um, mm-hmm. that he is trying to wrangle, including in this movie. Like, you know, yeah, as you mentioned, like Richard Dreyfus supposedly was, you know very interesting to deal with and bill murray is like often his own like you know mm-hmm. insanity but it, the, i don't know if the movie works if you don't have someone like murray doing this because he can do the immensely obnoxiousness of this but at the beating heart which frank oz does have a very big emotional stuff in a lot of his movies mm-hmm. the beating heart of this movie is all frank really needs seemingly is acceptance he mm. needs people to treat him like, you know, there's this heart that he has and he's scared. He's constantly scared. And when he's accepted by this family, he seems to be able the, – the, he's able to match their heart. And that yeah. helps him, you know, kind of acclimate again to like normal world. He's always needed right. – he needs, he's needed caring people around him. That yeah. you know. Bill Murray is not always an actor I think of – 
as being really sympathetic on screen. I think this is the most sympathetic Bill Murray is in any movie. And Jim, I understand what you're saying because all good comedy walks a very fine line. Sure. And Ross and I see this all the time (laughs) that one of us thinks the movie's on the wrong side of the line. And one of us thinks it's on the right side of the line. And so um, I think this movie walks that line really finely. Yeah. None of it bothers me really. I think that Frank Oz gives it enough compassion that it works for me, but I can see where this movie could just not work at all, especially for a modern audience. Yeah. And I, I, I'm framing it that way as like, um, you know, in in terms of the modern landscape that we live in or the fact that I studied briefly to be a therapist. I'm just like that, that sort of has changed my experience with the film at the same time. It's funny. And Bill Murray's great, and Richard Dreyfuss has some hilarious screaming moments, uh-huh. uh, which I just always enjoy. And so there's, like, I'm watching it kind of cringing and laughing at the same time, and mm-hmm. also like, again, the tones is just the he he knows how to make. You're right. He knows how to make yeah. this a compassionate film without being sappy, and yeah. the, but at the same time, like, there aren't weird touches. That like the score almost sounds like a Tim Burton score at one point, where it's just got like the the kids going la 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 la. It's like really weird, like a, almost like a Danny Elfman kind of score at times. That's just and like the lightning at the end definitely starts yeah. to play up that that horror yeah. aspect to it. That, um, but I think it, it looks great. I'll say I saw this for the first time about six or seven years ago at an outdoor screening at the Traverse City Film Festival on the beach, and it was like you know, probably 500 people there sitting. And it was like you said, Jim, it played like gangbusters at that school. Oh, people love this that movie. Just people riotously loving this movie. So it's, it's definitely, you know, and I think it's because, you know, we're talking about the, the alchemy and I don't think we've even talked enough about the, the Richard Dreyfuss performance, which I think he eventually came around on himself realizing how good he was in this movie. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. But he's great. He's great. And I think the, we talked about balancing tones and balancing this stuff. The trick of this movie is you have to balance the, again, as we've talked about, he has legitimate and very valid concerns about everything mm-hmm. that's going on. But you've also made his character an extremely pompous, you know, there's definitely a question about his psychological, like his his prowess at what he does. Like it seems very pop mm-hmm. psychology. And, you know, he's so focused on this book and the the interview and, you know, so you have to kind of make him unlikable enough that you're like, you know, you probably need to look in. (laughs) And he bought the house out from under the charming old couple who, (laughs) oh, every time they pop up on that boat and she just screams something ridiculous at him is so good. It's so good. That was, oh. Fantastic. The only the only movie where I have ever actually laughed and not cringed at a Tourette's joke, like because it's done in such a wholesome, funny way. I think that you know the portrayal of funny. mental health in this movie. Mm. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> that you know, again, the the idea that death therapy is a thing. <laughs> Yeah, just, just the idea that, like, you know, or just how very easily it is for him to manipulate him getting forcibly committed. Yeah. Or just like, yeah, do me a solid and lock this guy up. 
And Charlie Corsmo is so cute as the little kid. Aww. Of course, oh, yeah. also from Dick Tracy. He plays and the kid Hook. in Dick Tracy. So there you go. Yeah. And Hook. That's what I remember him from. Okay. I, was, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm the right age for Hook. Um, so so, he yeah. does like a really great dad joke at one point that I remember the audience just fell out of their seats laughing at when he's like, Richard Dreyfus is like, I want some peace and quiet. No, I'll be quiet. I'll be peace. <laughs> I think doesn't Julie Haggerty then start laughing in the background? Yeah, yes, I think she, she does. does. Yeah. yeah, she's always Julie Haggerty. Always, what a what a treasure! She American treasure in, in everything. Yeah, wow. yeah, absolutely fantastic. Uh, I was just I was just looking at the Wikipedia really quick, and I was like. Are, were there original casting choices? And of course, in the, in the production part, it's like Patrick Stewart was considered for the role of Dr. Marvin and Robin yeah. Williams was attached at one point. I'm just like, wow, what a different yeah. movie that would have been. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wild. Mm-hmm. It's very, very different. It's uh no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not anti what about Bob in any way, because I, I openly admit it makes me laugh. It's just, ooh. Like a discomfort, like an uncomfortable laughter. Now, it's almost mm-hmm. like the, you know, that nowadays we sort of, geez, like we're sort of inundated with the um, uncomfortable, awkward comedy. That I just remember, like, oh, curb your enthusiasm, Seinfeld, all that stuff was mm-hmm. like huge, and now you got people like Nathan Fielder, sort of like really <laughs> taking it to a new levels, <laughs> yeah. uh, where it's just like, Ugh, I don't know if this is right. And I don't know if I should be laughing at this, but I am. That's kind of where I'm at now with what about Bob? I don't know. It's it, yeah. I think. I mean, look, and as everything we're going to talk about, you know, and already have with with Frank Oz and with comedy, right? It's it is like what ends up in the end making you laugh. And sometimes a comedy can make you laugh so much, and you, you know, you can be like, yeah, when I think about it, that's definitely problematic elements. But you know what? It made me laugh, and I can just you mm-hmm. know. You shut your brain off. <laughs> and then there's times where it's like, nope, that was too much. <laughs> like, <laughs> nope. The yeah. laughs, the laughs aren't coming and I'm thinking about this too much. You know what? I don't care. House sitter makes me laugh. <laughs> you, you know what? It's Good weird. It, I know. And it's and it's weird because like I just assume like, oh, this is kind of a a beloved, charming Goldie Hawn, Steve Martin vehicle that everybody is kind of on the same page with. And then I go to Letterboxd and I see all the two and a half, three star ratings, the middling reviews. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. huh, maybe this is just a case of nostalgia because I know I watched this a lot on cable and I just love Steve Martin and I love Goldie Hawn. So that's all it took. I don't know, <laughs> but I watch it again now and I'm just like, this is, I, 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 what can I say? I do laugh at this movie. What, yeah. You know, I mean, once it becomes like really wacky with the wedding party, I don't know, like all these characters sort of interacting with all these fabrications that Goldie Hawn is sort of set up to work with. I don't know. I, I, I'm mostly on board with House Sitter. I don't think it's perfect. I don't think it's an all-time comedy classic. I don't even know if they should end up together in the end. But no. No. <laughs> I, I didn't think so. I think, I think I agree with everything you said, Jim, but I am one of those people who gave it two and a half stars. Sure, sure. Because yeah. um, I think that wedding, that house party scene is really funny. Like, when the film finally gets full screwball comedy, yeah. I loved it. To me, it took a little too long to get there. Um, 
I also feel like Goldie Hawn and Steve Martin are a little too old for these parts. Like, I don't know. It's there was something that just rubbed me the wrong way for about the first half. And then once I caught on, I did really enjoy it. I wonder if the problem is also for me is the, again, the heart element of this movie, right? As you said, I don't know, Jim, like you were like, I don't know if these two people should end up together. I think I watched this whole movie being like, you're trying to sell me on this idea of like, I should get care about Goldie Hawn's character. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there thinking from the beginning, like, wait, so let me understand this correctly. She essentially just decides that she's going to squat in this guy's house and just build up all of this credit that he's going to have to pay. And he's supposed to somehow still be like, yeah, no, 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 this is all fine. Right. Like, there's, <laughs> I think that the, it's a Bob she, Wiley situation a little bit. Like yeah. <laughs> just like intruding on his life. The difference is, is that like at one point she tries to play it off like, like, shouldn't you feel sorry for me? Like, I was going to, like, this is where, but the problem is that you know she was in no danger where she was, right? She could have just stayed, like, she was fine in her apartment, she's got this job, it may not be the great, but, like, she tries to tell him that to get the, like, you know, the thing, and it's like, I, I think you're missing the element of where you want to feel something, like, that emotional connection to this character, who just seems to just be like, you're like, no, I think you just flat out did the wrong thing. It's, it's <laughs> weird no- because it is like kind of a, a crazy amalgam of his last two movies. When you think about yeah. it, like yeah. just the intrusive mm-hmm. element from what about Bob and the con artists from dirty rotten scoundrels. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's to me, it is a whole bunch of talented people doing a really great job with a really just lousy script. I think. Yeah. And I think that they can never quite overcome the problems that are in this script. Because I think everyone in this movie is very funny. Mm-hmm. Um, although, this is the second time this year, Ross, that you and I have talked about Goldie Hawn and Steve <laughs> Martin together. I just, I, we also talked about the out-of-towners on our show. I don't know how much chemistry they have really together. I don't really love You might be right. A, you might be right. As a, as a pairing. I don't think, I think they work much better in this than they did in the out-of-towners remake. Yeah. But um, I think, and the script is by Brian Grazer, you know, super producer who also produced it so i don't know if just they couldn't convince him to he was wielding his power too much and they couldn't get the script up to snuff but i think it's maybe the worst script that frank oz has to work with <laughs> at, at least up to, at least up to this point at least up to this point oh yeah yeah, 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 yeah. 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 so i think i mean there's one all-around stinker coming up but you know yeah. um i think he just they're not able to overcome those problems. Yeah. I, you know, and it's interesting because again, looking at the unmade Frank Oz portion here of our Wikipedia, um, he also at one point was possibly going to do dream girls at this point. Um, Oh, and you know, the idea that we could have gotten another Frank Oz musical instead sounds Mm -hmm. fascinating. Is Frank Oz the person I would necessarily have to direct a dream girls musical? That's a question. Yeah. But the idea that he, possibly was toying with the idea of making another musical to me is much more interesting than this movie, which feels again, it's like you threw two people who are very, you know, big comedy people. And it's just like, well, this let's, let's make this work. 
And it let, me, let me also say, I'm going to stand by this is the worst script that Frank Oz had to work with, because I think I know the other movie you two are thinking of, and I don't think that movie actually had a script. So, <laughs> uh, therefore... Okay, I see what you're saying. <laughs> yes. That's, that's valid points. Valid, valid yeah, points. There, uh, <laughs> there, I think there was a script. I don't know how much of it was followed. <laughs> Correct. Or, or if that logically connects in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just... I'm just I'm, again, I'm, I always tend to like just to have it up as reference i i'm looking at the wikipedia i 36 percent on rotten tomatoes am i have i just been delusional all these years thinking like oh this is uh, people like this movie don't they no they don't (laughs) apparently i've been living on this island of like oh house sitter fans come 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 join me and nobody (laughs) nobody's coming up uh that seems i mean that seems low and supposedly and, and, and even for like what we're saying, I mean, I, I, that's a that's a low thing. I mean, supposedly Meg Ryan at one point was offered the role of Goldie Hawn, and I'm kind of like, I don't know, that would be really like Joe versus the volcano era Meg mm-hmm, Ryan. Mm-hmm. Like, all right, mm-hmm. like that would be interesting. Heck, um, dude, have Tom Hanks instead of Steve hey, Martin. Yeah. <laughs> I would love. I could have done this. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I don't know if a Meg Ryan, Steve Martin romantic comedy is what I need. No. But, yeah. but you know, the, I I think it's like I again, it's like I get that why you put these two people together. I think both of them have like these you know long history of of great mm-hmm. comedy and and kind of the styling. But yeah, it it there's just something missing. I would agree. Missing. I would agree. The whole romantic angle and even just like. I don't really care about even like Dana Delaney's character showing up to sort of like create like this tension between the two of them. Like, I mean, why should I care when she's, she didn't seem to care about him to enough to be like, I'm proposing to you and you're just going to say no. And I I mean, like that sort of just like is thrown in there and then we jump all of a sudden to a, a point in time later on. And yeah, you're right. There's like not the kind of emotional investment to where like all these characters feel fully developed and that's mm-hmm. kind of a bummer, but I just happen to laugh. I don't know. <laughs> that's that's what it comes down to. Most of it's I mean, most that of it's, said, this is the kind of movie that I could see myself fifteen years ago getting sucked into every time it's on TBS. Yeah, so you know absolutely. Um yeah. That's what happens. It's a me, very kind of like mild Can we also just talk about the fact that this movie's PG? What? How is it? I would have thought. I would have thought PG thirteen. I yeah. I, I would have thought too because there is several sex references. Like this is a surprising. Like, is there a thing for like surprising movies that are PG? Because this would absolutely be in there. Wow! <laughs> continuing Frank Oz's um amazing, you know, cruise. This film also looks fantastic because it is shot by John A. Alonzo who was the cinematographer of things such as Chinatown <laughs> and Brian De Palma's Scarface. So, sure. you know, just, yeah, the, the credentials here. That's are, just wild to me uh, that the, these cinematographers end up doing these types of movies. He, he yeah, shot I Cool know, World so. the same year. <laughs> yeah, so I'm like, go. what? Equal, equal movies. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> oh, same my things. gosh. Well, I also remember going to the theater with my friend because we, we both were fans of the book, uh, The Indian in the Cupboard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A- and when uh, when we saw the movie, we were like, wow, 
that was very, very faithful and very sweet and kind of moving in the end. So, like, I I, I revisited it and I'm just like, this is really well done. I Mm -hmm. I mean, again, like, it it sort of took me aback because I thought maybe I'm going to be like, eh, maybe it's just going to, it appeals to a younger demographic and that's clearly what it's made for. But uh, you, you, you talk about great DPs. Russell Carpenter shot this movie. Kind of love that yeah. guy. Uh, and yeah, you got Richard Jenkins and Lindsey Krauss and David Keith. Like there, there's really good supporting players here in this. Steve Coogan, of course. Yeah. Uh, so everybody's, yeah, I liked, I really think this is a charming film that still holds up. I mean, I don't, I don't understand like people just harp. Like I remember Ebert at the time saying, oh, this movie's too depressing or whatever. And I, I don't know. I, I I still think it's pretty special and kind of a yeah. surprise. Yeah, no, I this was one of two movies that I had never seen um before I started this rewatch and it was the surprise for me of sure. um, his career cuz I did not know what to expect and let's be honest, you tell me there's a movie called The Indian in the Cupboard from mm-hmm. 1995 and I am going to expect the worst. Yep. And it is so lovingly done. I think Lightfoot is so good as, you know, the the yeah. toy who comes to life. And I was shocked by how really considerate it was to, is it a perfect idea? No, but like is so much more culturally um, intelligent yes. about this world than I imagined this movie being in 1995. And again, I think had anyone except for Frank Oz made this, it might have been a real mess of a movie. But, you know, you can tell it's that Henson Sesame Street cultural understanding coming through that if we're going to do this, we're going to do it the right way and pay tribute to this tribe. Yeah, and then the yeah. sensitivity brought to from the script here because it's written by Melissa Matheson. Yeah. You know, I, I think that really, that component really helps. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think also Lightfoot, when he got onto the picture, really kind of pushed them Mm -hmm. to be more respectful. I can see that too. It sounds like he, he really kind of pushed for them to be like, no, if you're going to do this, like Mm -hmm. you better start, you know, doing better. I mean, yeah, this is also Frank Oz kind of playing in the like Spielberg adjacent world, right? I mean, this is produced by Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Melissa, yeah, Melissa Matheson writes the script. I mean, there is a scene where Darth Vader in <laughs> like, a T-Rex that's clearly like Jurassic Park are all yeah. coming to life, right? And RoboCop, which is a whole nother thing of the kidification of RoboCop is a still a mind-boggling thing to me. Um yeah. This is the movie that, of all the movies we're we're talking about, you know, today, it's probably the only one I saw in a theater because I am the right age for this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember, I think my cousin had it even on VHS, and so I hadn't seen it probably in you know like twenty eight years. Um, it is it is more moving than I expected. Um, it is definitely is it a perfect. Um, you know, again, depiction for uh, first people and for Native Americans, uh, that probably, you know, it could be a lot worse, yeah. <laughs> especially oh, in yeah. 1995. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it does have, again, the heart, the heart that Frank Oz really has. 
And I would say that the the lead performance by uh, Hal Scardino is pretty good. Yeah. You really, you really do care for this kid, and this kid has this really love and and protection for um, all of these toys that come to life. Yeah, mm-hmm. I completely agree with that. And uh, it's it, it's funny, like when I was watching again, like where have I seen this kid before? Because he hasn't been in much. But of course, I do. I've seen Searching for Bobby Fisher like an insane amount of times. It's like yeah. that and Sneakers for some reason. I've seen both of those movies way <laughs> too much. Sneakers rules. Well, yeah, like, both of yeah. those movies rule. And of course, like yeah, little little Hal Scardino here. He was in. He played. He played a small part, but he was in Searching for Bobby Fisher. Um, Vincent Carthesier. I don't. I don't know how to say his last name. I was going to say Pete Campbell. Yeah. Pete Campbell. Oh, Pete Campbell. Pete right. Campbell. Yeah, I know. Right. That's a surprise too. And Mr. Serrano from Lost shows up as the teacher. A really oh, great right. cast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, um, Frank Oz, really good at casting, really good at finding, I think, these actors even before they're, you know, major figures and putting them in here. Um, and also really good with kids. I think all the kid performances in all these movies are really good. But you're right, especially here. Um, he's really good. Okay. Um, yeah, it's it's yeah. it's charming. It's delightful. I wouldn't call it upper tier Frank Oz, and no. I. But it's it's. I don't think people should dismiss it, especially when they see the title. You know, I understand yeah. why and they'd have. And that I reaction. think that this is a a fallow period for a lot of movies like this in the nineties. Mm. There's a lot of really horrible ones that were coming out in this vein, and this stood above some of the rest of them. I think. Yeah, I agree. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh boy, here we go. Because uh, I'm, I, again, like I talk about my love of Steve Martin. Um, I pro- I feel like I probably saw Fish Called Wanda at too young of an age. But I just yeah. remember taking away from it how freaking funny Kevin Klein is. Yes. And I will just, again, one of those, one of those actors where I was, whenever he's in a movie, I'm excited and certainly at around this time, that's no exception. So again, like I see the trailer for this, they're playing the village people and I'm like, mm, I don't know what the heck is this going to be? And again, it's, it's, it's really anchored by a terrific ensemble in the quiet town of Greenleaf, Indiana. A high school teacher is about to be married. After three long years, and I'm sure a lot of you were asking, what was the problem? You said it. (laughs) A former student is about to be honored. And the winner is Cameron Drake to serve and protect. But for Howard Brackett. I'd like to dedicate this whole night to a great guy and a great teacher, to Howard Brackett from Greenleaf, Indiana. A bombshell is about to drop. And he's gay. First I was afraid. I was petrified. Kept thinking I could never Howard, what is he talking about? I have no idea. I mean, I'm nobody. I'm just a little teacher in a little town. Oh, it's going to be fine. By tomorrow night, hoo-ha, will he remember? There he is, that's him. Mr. Rackett, do you know Ellen? A teacher in trouble. A town under siege. Are you? What? Uh, oh. Oh. Oh, Homeroom teacher. Of course the guy thinks you're gay. You're smart and well-dressed. And really clean. And you're kind of prissy. Prissy? Oh, yeah. It really yeah. is. Like, I mean, and again, uh, Paul Rudnick, <laughs> a 
like between this and Adam's Family Values, two of the best comedy mm-hmm. screenplays of that time, and both, of course, with Joan Cusack giving yeah. two of the best comedic performances maybe ever. So mm-hmm. those are those are some of its strengths. I again like he, he it, also wrote Sister Act. Don't oh, that's right, so. right, yeah, of course. Yeah. That that that's. I mean, again, he's had mm-hmm. he had a couple clunkers, and we'll get to one of them. But he, uh, I will <laughs> say that you know, similar to my quibbles about what about Bob, I guess the portrayal of of you know homosexuality right down to including the village people just seems a little too broad and cliche. Uh, I'm, but again, like I'm still laughing, even if I think in essence, this is a one joke movie, but it's got quality dialogue. It's got great characters. It's very funny, pretty much throughout the whole movie. So I don't know. I, I still really enjoy this, but a lot of that just has to do with the fact that I find everybody in this movie to just be really funny people in general. So I just enjoy seeing them on screen together. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, I think Kevin Klein, as you said, winning Yeah. in every, everything he does, he is just such a delight and he is such a delight in this movie. The whole sequence of him listening to the tape mm-hmm. of like how to be more like masculine <laughs> or whatever. And the tape then just starts interacting with him. Yeah. He's perfect it's so good um i do agree with you there's a scene in this movie that actually got me actively like it it maybe impacted how i fully viewed the movie that i was like i don't think that's a right way to throw this um and it was this it there's a a scene later on in the movie when the wedding is called off and tom Selleck is having this conversation with joan cusack and he basically tells her, oh, well, you shouldn't get angry. It's his problem. It's his fault. He should have told you. you know. And it's kind of like blaming him. And I'm like, well, I mean, he didn't – You know, I don't think that's a correct way to put that. That seems a little no. harsh. And I, and I remember being like, I feel like that shouldn't be the message here. It's just a, – it's, it's an unfortunate thing of – you know, I don't think he intends to hurt Joan Cusack. Um, but this also continues his streak of having um, – problems on set supposedly him and wilford brimley did not get along which you know my shock is little on that gosh this just seems to be a reoccurring thing yeah suddenly he didn't get along with this person they also supposedly had to shut down the whole uh set at one point because everyone got the flu oh wow just like they were all sick we didn't even mention unfortunately i feel like we probably should about with the indian the covered they had to shut down i or they had a huge problem when one of the technicians passed away Pat Tanner, while they were, uh, he was riding a motorized hoist used to lift scenery. So, I mean, he, this kind of, you know, that's obviously much more serious than the stuff here, but he does kind of have this tendency of having these sets that seem to just feed on chaos, maybe, um, or, or have these sorts of issues or problems or, um, you know, something suddenly happens. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think this movie, again, it, it very easily could be, a movie that you watch now in 2023 and could feel like, oh dear, this is really bad. <laughs> like this does not go well. Um, but it it's shocking, kind of how it, it holds up as well as it does. I love this movie. I love everything about this movie. <laughs> I think it is almost near perfect. I rewatched it again, not sure what to expect. And while I see what you guys are both saying. 
I did not feel any of that. I think Paul Rudnick's script is so smart and so pointed. And like everything else, there's a lot of the birdcage in this movie. Mm. I think in that idea that, yes, it's the 90s. And yes, we are going to embrace some of these stereotypes about homosexuality and and who they are but like the birdcage the joke is always on the other people and their assumptions about what gay people are like and their comments is where i think the humor comes out and um i just i find i think kevin klein is brilliant in this movie i think the film is cast so wonderfully and um i just I, I find it shockingly not offensive for a movie that came out when it did about this topic. And I credit a lot of that, I think, to just Paul Rudnick and what he brought to to the script. You know? Yeah, and said, he, com- he, he obviously he is, he is gay. So, yeah, I mean, he's, yes, he's, he exactly. he feels very comfortable. And, and his, and his, and has written a lot. He his play Jeffrey is you know a very oh, oh, important yeah. step in in gay theater, and so has talked a lot about that. And again, you know, I'm a straight man talking about this movie, so maybe I you know have the wrong uh, ideas here. But I remember really loving it when it came out. Um, I saw this opening night, a double feature. We saw this and then L.A. Confidential back to back. Whoa! Um, and two so I know there's go go well together right there. Two, two supporting actress uh, nominees yes. from the years. So yes, but um, yes, but I just I I was shocked at how well I thought this movie held up. So which one did um, you do first trip? This go, it was this. this. Yeah, because we went, we tried to go see LA Confidential and they wouldn't let us in. So we saw <laughs> this while we waited for my dad to show up and then he watched LA Confidential with us. So it's a real, a real yeah. Barbenheimer situation right here. Like, go for the mm-hmm. comedy first yeah. and then go for the serious noir, <laughs> you know. <laughs> like, it's, yeah, you know I, I, I was ahead of the game there, Ross. There we go. Uh, always, yeah. always a trendsetter. Um, my, my, my in and out credential or whatever you want to call it. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, yeah, I mean, oh, for sure, it, for a late '90s comedy, and you know, our you know some of the stuff we've talked about on our show, and I'm sure we'll get much more um, homophobia jokes. Uh, it, it was like a huge thing in comedy. It's mm-hmm. that, like age mm-hmm. so badly. And this movie is surprising in the sense of, yeah, I mean, I agree. The joke is usually actually on everyone else. Mm-hmm. And That's a good point. Yeah. Kevin Klein. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it, the I mean, and the homophobia jokes in this revolve around things like, do you think that, what's the one line I wrote down? Do you think that homosexuals should be allowed to handle produce? Like, just, <laughs> like it, <laughs> the, the stereotypes are there. I think the heart of this movie too is with Kevin Klein. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. a man. Like the, the heart of this movie is it's a man figuring out his own sexuality and trying to, f- you know, coming to a realization that maybe somewhere in in him he maybe had these questions, but now is realizing more and more that maybe yeah, and then feeling comfortable enough to you know kind of you know, mm-hmm. come out and, and do these sorts of things. So the movie at its core is on the side of Kevin Klein. It's, yeah. 
you know, yeah. It, oh, it, I think that's absolutely cool. true. I think it's just some of the reactions from the town. I always, I just, especially now, I'm just like, gosh, calm down. Even if this is a very yeah. conservative small town, but you're right in that. Like the, the joke is on them for reacting that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bob. and I think too. I think Frank Oz and Paul Rudnick are also smart enough that like all of these characters, especially like the principal and the other people around the school, there is a sense of like, okay, I see where you're coming from, but you're wrong, right? And mm-hmm. so, yeah, it, it none of them are villains per se, but they just they're misunderstanding things, and so. Um, by the end, that brilliant scene, the Spartacus scene at the end, yeah. which is so funny, you know, that you do, you get to see them kind of turn the tables on all of them. Well, I was just, the best part of that scene is the teacher that won the award that just keeps trying to do his speech. <laughs> <laughs> like, he just, he's like, but I still want to win the award. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't understand. Like, this is my chance. Uh, like, and I, yeah. That is a total Frank Oz touch to just throw that in there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, I, I love those little things that he does. Played by Louis J. Stadlin, uh, that teacher, <laughs> which I remember, this is the sort of geek I was in 1997. I was so excited because this movie contained three separate cast members of the Nathan Lane revival of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Fall. <laughs> oh, wow. And like, I was, yeah. Uh, Louis J. Stadlin, Ernie Sabella, and Ross, our beloved William Duell. Oh, um, yes. all, all from there. So definitely carried right on over. Bless you for knowing that somehow this movie yeah. has three people from the Nathan Lane. <laughs> funny thing happened on the way to the forum. I love and, it. Um, Gregory Jabara, who plays his brother, um, believe it or not, I knew him because I saw him play Billy Flynn on Broadway. Oh. So a 180 from his role in this movie. So Yeah. Oh, my 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 yeah. my, my, uh, my crush from Six Feet Under, Lauren Ambrose, is in this, mm-hmm. and oh, yeah. I, I really like going back and w- when Jay Smith Cameron shows up in things now. I'm like, yes, oh, yeah, because <laughs> I just been she's, been, she's been around for so long, and I hadn't really like honed in on 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 how great she. Is. I mean, she's obviously a terrific theater yeah. actress and is married to Kenneth Lonergan and all that. But mm-hmm. whenever she shows up and in movies, I go to from the past. I'm just like, I love you. You're so great. And, <laughs> did you notice Bill camp has like one line in here too. That's um, right. Um, in yeah. the bachelor party. So yeah. And I think too, Bob Newhart is so oh, perfect yeah. in this oh, movie yeah. that, yeah. and that makes it too, because casting Bob Newhart as the bad guy, that it's just, again, it's not a mean thing. It's a, Bob Newhart notoriously never understands the world that's around him. Mm. So he's just befuddled by everything the whole time. I think it's a really brilliant kind of subverting of him. It's a very interesting choice to cast him because it is you, you're using a, an actor who we as an audience have such a deep connection with and a Mm -hmm. love for and a warmth. And you have him take that turn towards the end of the movie where you're like, wait, what? (laughs) <laughs> like, no, 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 no. Bob Hart Newhart doesn't do this. Like, no, 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 no. It, you know, this is this is the guy who sat on the couch and tells me, you know, we tell your problems to, right? Mm-hmm. He he can't be that. And so, yeah, using Newhart in that way is a very interesting uh, choice. I agree. And I do have a question for you both. Have you renewed your um, membership for Mindhead? 
you know, I've been meaning to. I just, just yeah, I've been meaning to for a while, but things just keep popping up. I, yeah, I am. I am very uh, uncomfortable talking too much about mine head. That's true. I, it might get into the first whatever rule really, is you shouldn't talk about it. Yes. Whatever it might really be uh, spoofing out there, and uh, hmm. the, yeah, it's hard to tell. Some, there's some litigation there, Jim. That you know, they're gonna. You're right. We got. We got. We got to be careful. Yeah, we can absolutely. talk about. We can talk about Bowfinger. Absolutely, we can. And and also, it's funny because I, I just mentioned Kevin Klein, of course, for In and Out, and how he he won an, an award for his work. Well, he won the Oscar, right, for Fish Called Wanda, mm-hmm. yes. and that yeah. rarely that rarely happens. Where you know, somebody yeah. I mean, we can think of Marissa Tomei, uh, Mira Sorvino for Mighty Aphrodite, but I think Eddie Murphy should have been not, at least nominated because oh yeah, good God, is he funny in this movie? Like just yes. as both characters too. Mm-hmm. And oh, watching it again, oh, yeah. I'm just like, I miss you, Eddie Murphy. <laughs> you know, just, truly. Yeah. No one else could have done the Eddie Murphy part in this movie because you know that, like, most comedians cannot pass themselves off as a real A-list action star. And no action star can pull off the physical comedy that Eddie Murphy does as Jeff here that um, oh, God. this is another this is another almost flawless movie to me. I love everything about this movie. In addition to being a major star in this film, would you also be willing to run errands? Oh, gosh, I, I'm really hoping to get a career running errands. That'd be a major boost for me. What'd you say your name was? Um, Jefferson. Jefferson? Uh, Jeff, my friends call me Jeff. Jeff, well, Jeff, welcome aboard. Here's your wardrobe. <laughs> All right. All right, awesome. awesome. I think it's brilliant. Um, yeah. I have nothing. Yeah, this is one of those movies where it's just like, I put it on, the smile doesn't leave my face for for 95 minutes, mm-hmm. or I'm laughing uproariously at it yeah. and I, I it, like most of us i guess we both love hollywood satires you know or yes. we I, both i should say all three of us <laughs> love hollywood satires oh yeah ross is here too don't forget yes yeah, 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 yeah. i'm not gonna forget yeah. ross ever it's it's okay i'm i'm i i love listening to both of you talk mm-hmm. so yeah i mean the, absolutely i think the funny thing about this is while it is a hollywood satire um it is a movie again that's really in love though with the process of making films and especially mm-hmm. low budget films and the community yeah. aspect of that. Mm-hmm. And in the end, that's what they really it, where the heart is with this film. It's that, you know, this kind of ragtag group that's trying to put this seemingly insane sounding movie. Like mm-hmm. I don't know how anyone reads a script called Chubby Rain and is like, yeah, that's a winner. <laughs> like, that's the that's the movie that's going to take us to the big time. Um, yeah. But it's it's such a, you know, it is very funny. And I agree. Eddie Murphy in this movie, I mean, supposedly the, Steve Martin wanted a more traditional action star for this and thought about someone mm-hmm. like Keanu Reeves. And <laughs> then Eddie Murphy was kind of brought to him as like this idea that supposedly Brian Grazer, who was producing this one also, suggested that. And then, you know, Steve Martin kind of approved it. And, I, and I'm and i watching this movie now going like, how was this not written for Eddie Murphy? Yeah. <laughs> like, 
it seems so perfect for him. And he's in this vein of his career where he's playing multiple characters. And, you know, that GIF character, every moment cracks me up. Every moment mm-hmm. cracks that up with him. Oh, God. Yeah, I, I mean, just his audition oh. scene alone, I mean, just oh. destroys uh, me. To me, it's the, the highway scene, I think. That too. Is about as perfect of comedy gets. And, <laughs> but again, I feel like this is also that I'm going to keep coming back to, like, the warmth that Frank Oz brings, right? Mm-hmm. Because so many other directors would make fun of this ragtag group so easily. Yeah. And he doesn't like there is, you love each and every one of these wacky, weird down on their luck characters that again, it feels like the Muppets, right? This like, (laughs) we're just going to throw a whole bunch of, you know, weirdos and outsiders together and see what they can make. And, you know, and I thought of Ed Wood. I thought of Ed Wood. Yes. yes, too. Yeah. And for a variety of reasons, because this is also a a Z-grade sci-fi movie, which Ed Wood is probably most known for Plan 9 from Outer Space. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of like a Plan 9 from Outer Space, right? Like, this is some, like, bizarro sci-fi movie that they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, But this, there's just so many people, again, with this movie and a cast that includes people like National Treasure Christine Baranski, which I believe is her full name. Um, and you know she's doing such great work, and you have Robert Downey Jr. like popping up, like suddenly in this movie, where you're like, "Wait, what? Like, what is he doing in here?" Yeah. Um, and Steve Martin, you know, just you know, again, it's his script. It's it can only be written by somebody who has to have that love for making film, mm-hmm. because in the end, it, it isn't as acidic as something like The Player. It is like in the end, kind of like, isn't the fun part that we get to somehow do this with like a group of people? Yeah. Like, somehow get to be together. I think we can yeah. all relate to that to some degree. I mean, even if we're not out making movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we're making a podcast. There's, there's, yeah. there, there's, we're, we're the rag, we're the Muppets. We're the ragtag team <laughs> here putting it all together. And we all have very distinctive personalities. And, you know, I make funny voices sometimes. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> do things like that Mm -hmm. but you know it's just it's it's just a really like by the end i'm 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 surprised at how moved i am when they're all sitting in the movie theater really and then when he finally gets his fedex package right like oh it's just oh this and castaway you know just just (laughs) can't help but be (laughs) commercials for fedex god damn it that's it but i think that's also Um, wasn't it runaway bride ross is that also um, a fedex truck that they jumps on a fedex truck there we go so i don't know where she's going but she'll get there in like (laughs) three to five days um (laughs) Uh, you know, I think the interesting thing about this movie is also that they're not trying to make it to the big time. They're just trying to – like Steve Martin's goal is to get that FedEx package, right? Yeah. He wants to be big enough that somebody <laughs> will feel the need to send him a FedEx. Like they, they're not they, – they, no one has these aspirations of being like – that they think they're actually going to be like massive, massive, massive stars. They think that they're going to be like at least get something that people are going to see. Yeah, uh, which is can they at least make a living off of this? You know, yeah. which is all all some people want. It it was interesting. I found a quote from Frank Oz just a couple of years talking about this movie, and he said, um, "If he made this movie today, he would not change a thing about this movie, except 
that Steve Martin would realize that he had to make a TV show and not a movie. <laughs> like that's the only thing that he, that has changed really is that. I might suggest the not picking up your film crew at the border. Uh, <laughs> but, oh you know, boy. Oh boy. Scene, but I, I will say it. it uh, you know, Trip and I have talked about this movie already and, uh, you know, or, or recorded our thoughts on it for our show. But the the interesting thing about it is is what they then take with those characters mm-hmm. is such a great joke that they yeah. all become like the most like not only just competent, like hyper specific film people. <laughs> like they're reading Kaiju cinema and right. having discussions about lenses and like doing like that's the best joke like one of the best jokes. It's just yeah. like, oh no, now they've all become like a mm-hmm. fantastic film crew. Like they're all great. And of course, he can't help but <laughs> make fun of Scientology. I know it's an easy joke, but I still laugh. I don't care. Terrence Stamp, come on. Oh, just chewing the scenery. Like, yeah. Having the most fun here ever. That Yeah. And yeah, those paper hats really make oh. me laugh every time. <laughs> This is the one, Jim, like your house sitter, where I think I've seen this on TV a million times. Sure. Just. Um, to the point that when I was rewatching it, the first 10 minutes of the movie, I had no idea. I was like, I don't remember any of this because only very few times have I sat down and watched the whole movie. I just stumble on it on TV at some mm. point. So um, I think Ross and I were saying on our show that like, we were shocked as to how long it takes Jeff to get into the movie. Yeah. Like not in about the first half of the movie. That's right. And I think it's because I always just watch the second half of the movie. So he's always just there the whole time. <laughs> and the advertising was very much it was Steve Martin and next Jeff. to yeah, Eddie Murphy as Jeff. Yeah. yeah. And that's how they sold it. And so it is like you know, that's why it's so shocking that it's like you're over halfway through the movie and you're like, Jeff hasn't showed up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought it, I I remembered it that it, he's like playing Kit's part the entire movie, and then you're like, oh no, that's like once he gets like locked up basically in like deep psycho, like you know, mm-hmm. like he's having his mental breakdown, like is when they have to go to Jeff. Um, Can I also just say I'm looking at that poster right now, Ross? Yeah, and the tagline of this movie is the con is on. What? Yeah. And I think you can take that tagline and apply it to <laughs> at least half of these movies. No kidding. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what it is that attracts Frank Oz to the con artist or the. But you know, uh, it, he loves David Mamet. That must be it. He just loves David Mamet. <laughs> it's, a, it's a magic thing too. Like I don't. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You kind of think of. Yeah. Not that the Muppets are a con, but like the Muppets, the magic of the Muppets is you are convincing whoever you're with mm-hmm. that this piece of felt or this puppet is real yeah. and you interact mm-hmm. with it and how they always talk about like people interacting with the Muppets is like, you know, performers would talk and you're like, you're in this and suddenly you're like talking to Kermit. Like it's like a real, like it's a regular yeah. scene. That's true. Or something like that. He's riding and, a bicycle. <laughs> I'm yeah. just like, what? How is he doing but, that? And so but, I think there's some element to that that's I think maybe that interests Frank Oz, maybe. Because I mean, look, we won't talk about it, but Derek Del Gaudio also is uh, mm-hmm. a magician, right? And his show was very much based in magic. So mm-hmm. maybe that's part of it and, and magic always 
borderlines on that like is this a con is it a you know illusion is it this kind of element to it so yeah and 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 david mamet liked to cast ricky J. he did see how it all comes together it all (laughs) it all comes together in the end Yeah, I, I will say that, like, I, I knew this before rewatching it, of course, but um, Heather Graham as Daisy now is, I, knowing who it's based on, it makes me a little sad, <laughs> you know, because of yes. what's happened, you know. To- yeah, I don't know. I mean, Steve Martin was supposedly, I mean, he was dating Anne Heche at the time. Right. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, and I don't want to speculate what about. Heather Graham's character is necessarily what inspired Steve Martin to base mm-hmm. it on Anne Heche. Um, but the, the Heather Graham whole element to the movie is fascinating because it is one that also like kind of borders lines on your like watching this going like she she's doing a good work and she's funny, but it's also like her entire character's premise is that she's just constantly sleeping with whoever it is to try to yeah. get more. Yeah. Like more screen time, more anything, more you know. At the end of the movie, what is it? She's suddenly dating then Kit, <laughs> then at the premiere, and so it's it's always like this different kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yep, and of course he has to have that last little <laughs> punctuation yeah. mark of uh, her deciding, oh, no, I'm going to be a lesbian because I want to. <laughs> just like yeah. But she's- <laughs> the most powerful lesbian in Hollywood. Right. That's like, true. That's yes, true. Like, yeah. Um, I wonder who that could be hmm, in yeah. 1999. I don't, you know, uh, but they, uh, but the movie does end with what is maybe my favorite scene of the entire movie, which is the whole second movie that they're filming. <laughs> it's, it's just so, I mean, you want to talk about the using the physical humor. I mean, the physical mm-hmm. humor in that scene is just so good about how bad they look doing action. It just had me laughing hysterically. Oh, yeah, I, I, I'd watch. You know, if they made a short movie out of that, I would watch yeah. the whole thing. <laughs> oh yeah, it's it's just so. I would uh, watch so Chubby Rain. Oh sure, just, I guess Chubby Rain's yeah. a cult classic. In, yes. in that the universe of that, it's absolutely like a Plan Nine from Outer Space, like mm-hmm. film for sure. I guess I should I should end this podcast episode with "Got you suckers." That's, yeah, that's how we end this. It's just suddenly you on the top of the Griffith Observatory uh, <laughs> yelling. Yeah. That's it. Uh, oh, so man. so the next one is very interesting in that it's kind of an outlier, maybe a little bit, in that it's not a straightforward laugh-out-loud comedy. <laughs> um, and, well, I mean, I guess we can all agree that maybe Marlon Brando isn't taking this very seriously. Um, and it shows in the f- <laughs> in the fact that during the filming of this movie, as Trip brought up at the beginning, uh, he made things a little difficult for Frank Oz by only referring to him as Miss Piggy. Uh, yeah, maybe he. I mean, Brando has a has a bit of a history uh, of being very difficult and complicated. Marlon Brando difficult. When I know. This happen? I know. Isn't this weird? What? Uh, <laughs> That's shocking. Like, yeah, like one of my favorite comedies, The Freshman, with Matthew Broderick. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, he he basically came out like right after the movie premiered and said, "Oh no, that was that was a terrible movie. I wish I'd never done it." 
and was like trying to create negative buzz surrounding that whole movie. It was just very strange behavior. But of course, we all know that Marlon Brando is capable of strange behavior. <laughs> and, and at one point, uh, like I remember Edward Norton talking about, oh my God, I can't believe I'm working with Marlon Brando and Robert De Niro in the same movie. Like two of my idols, my heroes are here and they don't care. Uh, De Niro would like even would fall asleep waiting for shots to be set up. Like just he'd just be sitting anywhere and just falling asleep and just not really giving a damn. Maybe he had a long night. Who knows? But I, the score is fine. I I yeah. I, I can I can watch it and enjoy it for what it is. You know I I know that Norton probably did some rewrites, of course, because that's what he does. Um, and certainly yeah. his. Uh, you know his character that he's playing within uh, is questionable, and then again, oof, like McGoof. yeah, uh, oof, he, McGoof on that. He did something similar in Primal Fear to some extent, I guess you could say. I mean, not not in the same well, way, not in the same very, extreme. It's very Ruprecht in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, mm. right? But it's when it's not played for laughs as much, and it's much more specifically one th- right. Ruprecht is just kind of out there and they yeah. don't really specify <laughs> you know what what is going on there whereas this is something very specific yeah. you know we're gonna get another chance at a score like why this what's the matter with why you why are you pushing this? four million balls how many times do i fucking tell you He's pushing it because we're running out of time i'm just saying if i'm gonna work with a partner on this we got to start putting hey, our heads together what, right away what are you doing in my house take it easy all i'm saying all i'm saying who the fuck is, is this kid what the fuck do you know? I'm the guy who's been on this for three weeks, what okay? You know? gotta hey, know if you're the guy Nick, that Max says you come are. On. I gotta go. What you, I gotta go. Look, all Nick, of Nick, Nick, hey, Nick, Nick, wait, wait. Nicky. Hey, I didn't come 500 miles, just... Jack Teller, nice to meet you, too. What you know, the, what the fuck? You're not smart enough to know where your dick is. Yeah. I think the movie is is good. It's a well-made... I enjoyed watching it. Sure. Um, I... I wish the Frank Oz had done more like this because I think he had this in him that he could do more than he could do something else other than just comedies. Right. I don't want to put down his comedies because they're brilliant, but I wish that he had done this more and maybe had a better script, had a more game cast to really dive into something like this, because I think that, heist sequence in this movie is really good oh yeah it's very well done. creates tension really well he he understands space so well frank oz that like you always know exactly where you are and all of this um it's just yeah none of the cast really seem to care about what they're doing much no, it's, not particularly. I mean, I, I will say like that. Yeah, you're right. The high sequence and with De Niro just like sort of hanging from the ceiling, you could see him sweating and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. That's all very effective. And I, I, I felt a lot of tension for, for that sequence. Wait. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm I am here for a great movie set in Montreal. I'm here for <laughs> Angela Bassett being just great Angela Bassett. And you could tell exactly how they were selling this movie. They sold this on the idea of you have three generations of like oh. method actor. Like this is I remember that's what it was. Yeah. yeah. Because this was when we all thought that Edward Norton was the next De Niro. Yeah. Right? That that this that was really that was what we were all being sold anyways. That I remember going to see this knowing this is like the three generations of great actors here. 
Yeah, and you have this idea that it's like it's Brando, it's De Niro, it's Edward Norton. It's the first time De Niro and Brando are going to share the screen together, right? Right, mm-hmm. and I I agree with you. I actually think De Niro's more dialed in than um, the, I mean Brando is doing his like <laughs> Brando in the '90s is a fascinating time. I mean, this is also like not that long after he's doing also like Island of Dr. Moreau. Oh, I would love a podcast that is just Brando in the 90s. <laughs> I think he's better in this, though, than he is in most anything he made in the 90s. Um, like, it's, I think he's better in this than Don It seems Ron like he's in a different or, movie, but I don't mind that either. Yes, he's like, definitely in a different movie. He's man. He, yeah. That introductory shot of him is so good. Mm-hmm. The way that Frank Oz uses that, you know, shooting from down the staircase in that jazz club, which is a really cool set. Yeah. Like, just, it's, there's some great visual flourish in this movie that you don't always get from Frank Oz movies. This is, I mean, again, it's like, it's a good. It's a good heist movie, and this is kind mm-hmm. of like Robert De Niro. Like this feels right in line with something like Ronin, right? Like sure. this kind of like later action-ish star Robert De Niro doing these kind of like I'm the elder statesman in this world, kind of doing mm-hmm. this one last job. He he works well, but the I think what does the movie eventually in from being like a great version of that mm-hmm. is. You can feel the tension with Edward Norton, and you can feel it in not necessarily the greatest of ways. And and yeah, the the, the let's go with the disguise, the disguise he puts on mm-hmm. in 1999, or sorry, in 2001 when they're making this, like she easily should have been like, oh, this is bad, like this is yeah. bad, like we should not be doing this. And it's it's really uncomfortable every time he does it. Um, it's also a little long. It yeah. feels like when it gets to the heist, it 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 works. But if this was like an hour forty five, like yeah. maybe this is a little bit instead of like just over two hours. I think if it's a little tighter, um, I think it works better. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. Yeah, I, I, it's pacing is is really an important element to where you're like, all right, I'm with this movie, even if it is two and a half hours, three hours, whatever. And here I, yeah, I could definitely feel the length at certain yeah, points. This and, is the longest movie that we're talking about yeah. by a good 15 minutes. So mm, yeah. Yeah. And you can, and you can sense that. And I also, I didn't even think with the first time I saw, it, I was just like, Oh, Edward Norton's going to turn. You know, I, I like I knew the twist, quote unquote. If there's yeah. a twist, yeah, it's, really, it's predictable. Yeah, it's, yeah. But, mm-hmm. So oh, I mean, yeah. in the end, it was like this is an entertaining movie. I was with it for the time I was watching it, but is it like a transcendent heist movie that I'm going to be thinking about in the way I do with mammoths movies or something? No, this no. is <laughs> definitely mm-hmm. not. There's talking about it now. There's a lot I don't remember about this movie. Like. Um, thinking back on it versus a lot of the rest of these that I do remember really well, even just having watched them over the last couple of weeks. So, I mean, um, what also doesn't I, help this movie is it comes out the same year as Ocean's Eleven. Like, oh, good point. A, yeah, you have a different con like heist movie that comes out the yeah. same year, made by a master and filmmaker. Is <laughs> Mammoth Heist the same year too? You I think it's right, be, or it's like it around yeah. that time. Mammoth Heist is also two thousand one. Oh my so, god. Yeah, Man. So. You do kind of get this, yeah. And I feel like heist, 
Mammoth's heist and this movie gets confused for each other like several times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yes. you, like in your head, you're like, wait, that was, which one is which again? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. But heist, but is, heist is the one with the better dialogue. <laughs> Very <laughs> memorable yeah. dialogue in that. People yeah. want money. That's why it's called money. Isn't that the big line from heist? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but it does make me, I wish that Frank Oz had gotten another chance like this. Like Absolutely. give him give him an Ocean's Eleven style script and I think he really could have done something cool. Or let him make a, a mob film or something like that because um, I do think that he he had a cool film like this in him. Yeah, I wish he did get more chances to do stuff like this. I mean, there's talks of, you know, some of these unre- you know realized projects and some of these things that maybe you wonder if he could have had some other opportunities to kind of do different types of things. But yeah, this is an outlier in his career because it is like not a straight comedy. It's, it's this heist yeah. movie, um, but he builds tension. Well, he knows exactly the, the levels mm-hmm. he has to push. Yep. Yeah. The, the movie that really got him huge into movies and movie making was touch of evil. So, yeah. you know, and, and you could see like, I wish he could have done something like mm-hmm. uh, I mean similar to the score, only with even more weighty themes and ideas and and characters with a lot of depth. Here it's all surface level stuff, but I enjoy it anyway. You know, and yeah. the Touch of Evil poster is in uh, Bobby Bowfinger's office. That's right. So. Yeah, there we go. You know, I, I would just keep Nicole Kidman away from remakes and TV adaptations. <laughs> Oof. But yeah. you, you know, and, and We're here, aren't we? <laughs> at the same time, it's like I, I'm watching this, and I've all I've seen the invasion a couple of times, and I'm watching mm-hmm. them. I'm like, God, there's a good movie in here. There is potential. Yeah. There is something about both of those movies where I'm just like, damn it, they were close, and they just ugh, they couldn't get there. I don't know, like, and they now they both seem like. <sighs> I guess watchable train wrecks. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think I, I, the stepper wise is not good. And the way it wraps up, especially in the final act, I find eye rolling and pretty awful, but yeah. there are yeah. things about it that I still laugh at again. Like, I don't know, just the setup and certainly the, the skewering of reality TV with like Mike white showing up at one point. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I find that pretty funny. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, once we before get- Mike White had become a reality TV show right character yeah. himself, I think, or more or less, maybe he's on. He might be on the Amazing Race the first time somewhere around here, right? But mm-hmm. like, um, yeah, yeah. But like yeah. this, the, the, Frank Oz has said, like this is the only movie that he ever made where he did not follow his instincts completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. and you can see it, and you can tell, and you can tell there's it's, compromises. This movie is filled with stunningly bizarre choices. Yes. Um, Starting with you changing fundamentally the ending from the 75 movie. And the, the 75 movie is a movie people should see. I think it's really good. I really love, I love that movie. Yeah, me too. And it's, but it's, but it's also a product of its time in the sense of the seventies and being bleaker. And Mm -hmm. the big things that they change from, the 70s are one uh they don't kill the people right like the idea in the 75 version is is that all the women are killed Mm -hmm. they're they're murdered and replaced by androids and the second is uh that 
the Catherine Ross character, the Nicole Kidman character, is turned. Is turned mm-hmm. at the yep. end, or at least it's implied that she is, you know, she's gone. That that's it. Um, and when you have the changes that they do, which also don't make even sense in the logic of the movie, sure. right? They are supposed to be like there's the scene where one of them is turned like is used as an actual ATM. But you're like, if these are just brain implants, how did that happen? I don't understand yeah. how that works. <laughs> That's a good point. Like, the internal logic of what their plot is doesn't make any sense. And the big twist is baffling. It doesn't make any sense. No, and it doesn't. So, like, suddenly Matthew Broderick's like, oh, I, don't, I actually want my wife to be my wife. Well, that and the and Glenn, Glenn Close. Yeah, the, yeah, that, that, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, that too. It's, yeah. it's mind-boggling. But – you know, I, I agree with you in this. I I recently saw it last year because it came up as part of my uh, shuffle that I do thanks to the Letterboxd uh, podcast weekend watch list. And I shuffled it and it came up and I was like, all right, I'll watch this. And the first time I watched it, I was like, okay, this isn't – I remember when this came out how much of a train wreck it's supposed to, it was supposed to be. Yeah. Like this is a horrendous movie. And I was like, all right, well, this isn't horrendous. I think it's ideas on – beta male you know like fragility is still timely sure and then i rewatched it again like yesterday and i was like oh no this is actually worse like than i thought like oh it's bad i I won't deny that yeah yes it's bad it's It's by far the worst movie we're talking about oh yeah without question and yet there are lines and there i mean you could tell rudnick has his 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 trademark signature ideas you know, early on, especially when Nicole Kidman's interacting with, um, uh, besides Roger, Bette Miller, Roger Bart. Thank you. Yeah. Roger Bart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's totally like, you could tell that's, that's Rutnick's tone and, and ideas yeah. being spewed into the film. That's what makes it the most frustrating because sure. first off, like this is just a movie filled with brilliant people, both in front of and behind the camera, right? Like mm-hmm. it should work. And you just feel, you know, that this is a movie that has 15 people all with their hand in the pot and all trying to control everything around it. That it's no one's fault that this movie's a disaster. It just, there's no cohesion to it at all. And so when you get the Rudnick lines that come through, you're like, yes, that's really funny. When you see Frank Oz controlling something, you're like, yes, that's really funny. You know, there's moments that some of these actors are good, but it's such a mess. It's missing the heart. It's missing yeah. the heart. Yeah, exactly. The central, the central room, the central couple in this movie is supposed to be Nicole Kidman and Matthew Broderick. And supposedly Matthew Broderick, I think, said like later, like this, it was completely unenjoyable to make this. And he also found that his part was terribly uninteresting. Mm-hmm. And it, he's not wrong. I don't think there's anything that shows in this movie why I should care about their marriage, why I should care about, you know, why they work, what, you know, what elements of this couple like actually do, like makes that. And I think that's also a big change from the 75 movie to another one of the big changes is the 75 movie. It's a lot more of like, this is a normal couple that suddenly goes into this world. And you start realizing like, 
you know, something, oh, but I could have this more male fantasy fulfillment idea, right? This movie is the least subtle of anything. Like, mm-hmm. it is, mm-hmm. it is like banging you over the head with the message of, like, you know, from the beginning with the, the fake, you know, reality shows, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like the women are like beating up on the men in those shows, right? And then it's like, we're going to keep doing this and the, and, it just makes it so that, like, by the end of the movie, you're like, I, I don't enjoy being a part of any of this anymore. No, it's <laughs> gross. <laughs> it's also Frank Oz just satire is never going to be his thing, right? That's not what he's going to do well. And then you're asking him to make a movie where half the characters are literally robots and, like, you know, personalityless, and it goes against, I think, everything we've said here that Frank Oz is so good at, um, yeah. like making these stuck characters complex and bringing love to everyone around him. And the core idea of the Stepford Wise is that you're not supposed to love most of these people, right? It's just, it's the wrong project for him, I think, and it's a misstep in every way. Yeah, the, the, this- the, we talk about tone management, and here it's just kind of shockingly mm-hmm. inept in, in like so trying to be one thing and then another. And I just don't buy the relationships in, in this movie no. at all. And it's kind of, no. kind of a shame because yeah, I love everybody involved with this movie. I mean, it's, it's, it's weird again, shocking. <laughs> I think even, okay. I'm looking at the Wikipedia again. I will say that, Frank Oz said, every single movie I do, there's tension. <laughs> yes. but, and that's really, kind of yeah. the point, I guess. And But like everybody, yeah, there was like people not getting along left and right to where yeah, I yeah, think it might even affected had, the movie. Yeah, he had problems with it. <laughs> the Wikipedia here. List, he, there, there were problems on set between Oz and stars Nicole Kidman, Bette Midler, Christopher Walken, Glenn Close, and Roger Bart. And I'm like, yeah. we're really running down the list of like everybody in this movie. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so, like... <laughs> That's what I love about Frank Oz, though, is that he will be the first to admit any time he messes up yeah. and any time yeah. there's something wrong. And he he will go out there and say, look, I majorly screwed up this movie and I didn't have a good idea of it and that it is rotten. And he's done that kind of time and time again of said, look, these are the mistakes that I made all own up to it, which you don't hear a lot from Hollywood people owe it up to their own mistakes. No, um, no. We'll just be honest about it. I mean, look, as a person who grew up in Connecticut and currently lives in New York City, I also find this movie to be just, you know, look, the way it treats my home state and also the city of New York City. <laughs> like, mm. it's not, it does not have a great opinion on either mm. one of them. Um but to at least give some positive, I do think Glenn Close is giving a very committed performance. I think. Oh she's, yeah. I think she's doing the best that she can with what she is given. I think even Nicole Kidman, I do think is trying. She's trying to do something with like you mm. know this part that I think is like she's just there's a lot of her character that is not likable. Like, and you don't got to like your characters, but I think with this, when you have to kind of buy in and feel this sort of connection to this, and, you know, in the original is Catherine Ross, who is kind of, you know, she's, you know, Elaine from The Graduate, right? Like, mm-hmm. she's, it's such a different connection we have with that character and what she is. Um, 
I, I think it just doesn't, you know, it's hard to fully, you know, mm-hmm. go with it, with it. Yeah. And I, I, I don't. In the end, no. like it's, it's fun. It's sad though. I mean, like even Ebert like said, "Oh, I, I'm giving this a thumbs up because it's rich with zingers." The screenplay, <laughs> like if you're just focusing on that, okay, I can see that. But you're 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 missing like the really horrible decision it decisions it makes pretty much along the way, and then especially by the end. Does anything say? mid 2000s bomb or disaster as much as casting faith hill in this movie mm. yeah that was fascinating see yeah, that such yeah. A yeah weird decision just a lot of yeah it, i mean i think he said at one point i was given too much money like and it just mm-hmm. feels like it. it's like the cgi in this movie is terrible it's like mm-hmm. really bad even for 2004 you're like oh yeah. that dog thing is like awful it's just it's all just a lot of to nothing the roger bart david marshall green david marshall grant (laughs) stuff in this bugged me in the way that i think in and out bugged you guys too of like it just seems so stereotypical and yeah yeah ridiculous in there yeah 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 i've been meaning to i don't know if i ever will I've never seen Bewitched, but I've always wanted to see it just to see if it's as bad as this because that's what everybody oh, was yeah. saying at the time. Maybe you can oh, add yeah. that to your to like your back list. Back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. When when we finally get to that movie, Jim, you're more than welcome to come sit through it with us. Mm, oh boy! Uh, in, in the year in the year of our Lord, like 2035, um, <laughs> we finally get to that. I think these were back to back too, right? Wasn't this like right it before been. Bewitched? Yeah, I think Bewitched is the next year. Oof. Oh man, that's rough. That's a that's a tough back to back right there. Well, let's end on a high note, shall we? Yeah. Yeah. I'm so excited because I think I think Frank Oz even probably said that he kind of wanted to get back to his roots in a way and mm-hmm. steer clear of the kind of budget that went into something like Stepford Wives, which, you know, again, it, it, it's, it's, it's a remake. And what, what are you going to do when a big studio is backing it up? You're going to be doing things you probably don't want to do. Whereas with death at a funeral, it does feel like the right madcap ensemble farce with again a bunch of crazy wide-eyed muppets running around doing wacky <laughs> antics that are consistently yeah. hilarious. Uh this is I haven't seen the remake. I don't know if I will. Um but I I this was this was one that I hadn't caught up with until this episode and I'm so glad that I did because I just found it endlessly entertaining. And again, we talked about how much I you know like Jay Smith Cameron now thinks of Succession our lead here, very memorable in succession. <laughs> this whole cast is bringing something unique and funny and wild mm-hmm. throughout this whole movie. It is a blast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, it's farce kind of done best. Yes. Right? That it, um, and yeah, the, you want to talk about just concise, tight comedy, like, Oz is in control at all moments here, yet, like, he lets the actors have that freedom to really play throughout the whole thing. I think, um, I love this movie. I think it's phenomenal. God, I hate funerals, don't you? They're just so depressing. Just a, I don't know, it's just a death and everything. If there's anything I can do, Sandra, well, don't put your hand there, dear. You'll leave smudge marks. 
Are you okay? I'm a bit nervous. Run our way to a funeral, you wanker! Don't you have any respect? Okay, calm down. Can I get you a cup of tea? Tea can do many things, Jane, but it can't bring back the dead. We can't fight what we had together. Justin, it was one night. It was a massive mistake. I was drunk out of my mind. You could have been a donkey. Um, so what are you doing next weekend? Have one of these. It'll make you feel better. <laughs> so the Valium you gave to Simon wasn't actually Valium. <laughs> it's an hallucinogenic concoction. Was it based uh, on a play? No, no it's not. It, it could be. I know. It, could be. Yeah. it feels like it. Yeah. Like you, you could, could adjust it. You could adjust it for the stage. I. By the way, I have seen the remake. You've seen this. You've seen the remake. Like they don't change. literally, the screenplay does not change between no. the two. Um, hey. That it's hey. almost and Peter Dinklage is in both also. Yes. Yeah, that's what's interesting to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a yeah. it's a very playing a character named Peter. Um, <laughs> it, this movie is very fun, and it's in after like what felt like this huge budget like big budget comedy he does kind of do now a much smaller you know mm-hmm. again it's like it feels like it's all it is for the most part all in one place not huge names smaller thing and goes back to a beating heart for the movie right to me it's such a fascinating thing i mean look this is the last movie he narrative feature he's directed he could always mm-hmm. direct something and i hope he does but to have the move, his what at the moment is his last narrative feature end with essentially almost that eulogy, mm. and that that Matthew McFadden gives, which is so you know touching, it's raw, it's honest. After all of this farce, all of this insanity, it grounds the movie back into this idea of like this is still a funeral, right? Like, in the end, everyone is here because this man has died. And, you know, the even through all the craziness that's happened, and you have Matthew McFadden giving that speech about, like, you know, my, my father was an exquisite man. And he wasn't a perfect man, but, you know, who is? And we're all trying in this world to do this. It, mm-hmm. It's such a, you know, again, it's what Frank Oz does really well. Through all of the farce and all the insanity – Alan Tudyk, who's fantastic oh, in this movie. Absolutely. Um, good Lord. It still comes back to that heart. It comes back to that, you know, the, the, that love. shouldn't, that, that, that eulogy shouldn't, it, it should feel forced. It should feel like just mm-hmm. saccharine and kind of yeah. doesn't fit with the rest of the movie. And yet it does. And yeah, that's the, yeah. that's the magic of Frank Oz for sure. Well, And look, I, Frank Oz has not been involved in the Muppets really since about 2000. Uh, five-ish, um, and he kind of broke completely from Sesame Street about a decade ago. But he's been very critical about what Disney has done with the Muppets, right? And he oh, keeps yeah. saying that the Muppets are now too nice to each other, and that the thing is about the Muppets is that they should always be bickering, right? They're a family, but they still fight, and they still have conflict. And that, to me, is what this movie is, right? Mm. That yeah. you're a family, and there's still going to be conflict, and there's still going to be fighting, but at the end, you're all still kind of stuck together, and you have to love each other. And so, yeah. to me, it carries that message of Frank and Jim so well of like a final piece here. And it's also just so funny. 
Like I always forget at just how much I laugh at this movie from all ends, right? It's a verbal laugh. It is physical comedy. It is gross out humor. <laughs> everything, everything involving the, the old man. Oh the, boy. It's so good. Like oh, it's just, I, I do. I, I love this. Love this movie. Yeah. Andy Nyman as, as Howard. Oh yeah. Yeah. Kind of like the unsung hero, but like, I mean, everybody in this movie does something. Wonderful. Every time I've seen this movie several times, and every time I watch the movie, there's a different unsung hero. Though. Sure, that's the thing. Yeah, because right? yeah. every time, and Andy Diamond to me this time, I'm like, okay, he's my MVP. But like last time I watched it, it was Alan Tudyk, and you know, oh, next sure. time I watch it, it might be someone else because you get sucked into one of the different journeys of the film. It's it's yeah, and and using the kind of physical comedy which Frank Oz was really good at directing, right? And combining it with this kind of very sarcastic British humor. And, you know, there is the kind of very silly elements to all this stuff, but there is just some like great <laughs> verbal jabbing. You took my mm-hmm. parking space. It's a funeral. There oh, is no yeah. parking space. It's <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, like the, the, the those sorts of elements of it, it, it is. It's a really, it's a quiet, in some respects, even as zany as this is, right, because of the lower budget, it is this quieter kind of just like beautiful kind of, if it is, his final film of mm-hmm. for a narrative thing of just being like, isn't this kind of a very kind of quaint, put everything together, good comedy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought of Faulty Towers a little bit Yeah, when I was watching this mm-hmm. and just thinking of like how they managed to do all these things in one environment. Yeah. And like you, you, you're, you're aware of where everyone is at what point. And again, Mm -hmm. like he just, he's so good with just the geography of where we're all at. And I, I just can't get over how funny, even if like, okay, like there is a little bit of like, Oh my God, my dad was gay. He had a gay affair. Oh no, Mm. it doesn't, it, I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't bother me because of, the tone that is established here is farce, you know, yeah. and I'm, I'm able well, to sort of like, it's exaggerated humor. Well, and the joke, I don't think like they're not freaked out because he was gay. They're freaked out that like their dad wasn't who they thought he was. Sure. Sure. Right. So I think that anybody, even anybody would react in that moment to like this. Wait a minute. Are you telling me my dad, like, had a secret life that I didn't know about. Right. It it could have been a woman walking in there. And I think they still would have been just as upset and weird. Mm -hmm. Um, It just adds that one level of heightened farce to it all. It's another thing you're trying to process while you're already in this grieving, Mm -hmm. you know, mode. And it's, so it's this thing of now, like this holy, like curveball that's now being thrown Mm -hmm. in. Right. And I think where it falls in the movie also is it's it's right after Alan Tudyk has knocked over the, the co- like the coffin because he's convinced yeah. that the coffin is moving, like, and so there's <laughs> which of course of sets the- up the great ending there. Uh, oh. I knew it. I knew it. I knew there was someone in the coffin. Yeah, I knew it was moving. It's so it's there's there is some like grounded things to these of like through all the farce and through everything because of the setting you understand mm-hmm. that this is all just like 
there's so much going on of the craziness, but also just like the emotional elements that are all going on here is because you're already in a heightened emotional state. So now you're adding the chaos to this and it becomes even more, which I think is why that ending lands as much as it is. Yeah. Because it's, it is that kind of like yank back of being like, you know that this has been going on under the surface and then it's like, mm-hmm. you're reminded again. It's like, right. And it puts a stop to, I think, because then the next thing is really just the, the final closing thing, right? Of, you know, except for one joke at the end that the uncle, you know, also got the Valium, you know, but but for most part, that kind of ends the comedy for most of the movie, right? right. It's now the emotional wrap up, which is yeah. really again where it's like we have to kind of hit that point. Yeah, he really grounds his comedies in some kind, and it's surprising to me that it's effective, and it's and I'm so grateful that he has this humanity in the same way that like. The Muppets had so much humanity, even if they were a wacky, Mm -hmm. goofy, insane Mm -hmm. bunch that told ridiculous jokes and had funny voices. You know, Mm -hmm. you still felt some emotion. Yeah. Throughout. And the the love that Sesame Street always Mm. got, right? You see that through all of this, that it, it pays off. This is where I will make my pitch out there. I don't know if anyone with any power would ever hear this. I think Frank Oz would be a perfect recipient of an honorary Oscar. Please. Um, I think he (laughs) just, he is the type of artist who, you know, has never, um, will has never, and won't make the sorts of movies that get you an Oscar. Right. But even beyond just what he's directed, you look at his performances um, <laughs> in the other Muppet stuff and as Yoda and in other things. Knives Out recently. Credit. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and let's be honest, if Jim Henson were still alive right now, he would have an honorary Oscar, right? Oh, yeah. And so giving Frank Oz the Oscar is also honoring what he and Henson together created and what the Henson company has done for really America, but especially American culture. Cause it's so key and so important. Yeah. If they did that, I would cry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah I, would. I think it's, I think wholeheartedly agree. And I think in the end, the, you know, trip, I think you said it earlier, the idea of the, the Muppets. And I think some of even were, this movie kind of goes in is the idea that like families fight families have these chaos mm-hmm. and that through all of this insanity, right? The Muppets always backstage was like a complete, you know, insanoid thing. Like every time they'd show the backstage of the Muppet oh, show, yeah. you're like, how the heck is this even like the building standing? Like mm-hmm. <laughs> The building should collapse on itself. Mm-hmm. But in the end, they all have this deep love for each other. And there yeah. is that kind of like, yeah, we're a bunch of weirdos that all put on a variety show. <laughs> like, and, you know, this is what we do. And I think well, that's kind of movie making for him. We're all a bunch the, of weirdos that all come together to do this. Yeah. The core, the core, the core tenet of, you know, Jim Henson and um, Frank Oz as a comedic duo was always that conflict, right? Yeah. Bert and Ernie drive each other nuts. Kermit and Miss Piggy are madly in love, but they fight all the time and they beat each other up. And, you know, Grover <laughs> drives um, 
Kermit nuts and through all of this that like that conflict was always at the root of everything they do and you see that throughout I think Frank Oz's filmography that it's people who somehow have a connection to each other but they're going to drive each other wild there's and always a the, there's always a struggle yeah and the comedy comes from yeah. you know Bob and Leo fighting all the time or Steve Martin and Michael Caine's rivalry or this large family at each other's throats all the time. Or Tripp and Ross. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Talking on the podcast. Making me watch, yes. Lost well, and found. With yeah, I was going to say lost and found. <laughs> oh dear. That's, that was but every now and then he introduces me to, uh, you know, blast from the past and I, uh, and I love him all the more. Oh, it's I do what I can, you yeah. know, I and also just on the simplest of levels, bring back the 90 minute comedy. Yes, yes exactly. We yes. don't need them to be over two hours. No, yeah. seriously, I mean, in and out. That's one way. Literally in and out. The, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> one way Ross sold me on this whole podcast was, you know, look, all the movies we're going to watch are all going to be nice and short. You know, there's no three hours. Except for the score. Oh, well. no, I was going to say, someday we're going to get to like the Judd Apatow, you know, yeah. bloated, yeah, bloated yeah, yeah. comedy uh, era. Uh, but but I yeah, I would, uh, of, you know, Frank Oz was very good at the idea of like, get to the point, get to, you know, mm-hmm. you do 90 minutes or, you know, somewhere between 90 to 100 minutes and, you know, you get out of there because you don't want well. the premise to feel stale and you don't want it, the jokes then to just kind of feel like, like, again, something like Death at a Funeral, I think if it goes on too much longer, you're kind of like, Okay, like mm-hmm. at a certain point, this has to like end. Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah, yeah. This, this becomes too much. Don't overstay your welcome. You know exactly. No. And uh, like a good variety show, it's like you got to know when when you've hit the joke and when you've done it, and then you get off stage. <laughs> yep. And we don't want to overstay our welcome either for the listeners out there. No. Uh, not that not that I think that would happen because we're having a great time, and I'm so grateful for the both of you because this was. This was just a gr- like, like, I mean, sometimes it's difficult. Like, even the next filmmaker I'm doing, uh, I can't even pronounce his name. I need to look it up. The guy who did uh, Hiroshima Manamore and last oh, year at Marion Bad. I'm like, oh, Renee, yeah. I'm just like, oh boy, oh boy, strap in. But with Frank Oz, it's just like, oh, I feel, yeah, I feel like I'm, it feels like a warm blanket of, yeah. of just like comedy mm-hmm. gold. And I just feel really blessed that he's made the movies that he's made and we get to experience them and they're still out there and you can yeah. still find them and visit yeah, your local yeah. library. Like you guys say it, which always mm-hmm. makes me happy. Um, yes. But, <laughs> yes. yes. But, but even for the most part, like almost all these movies are easily accessible. Um, yes. Yeah. In, in a whole yeah. lot of places. But um, I did have to get a couple DVDs from, uh, from, from the local library. But, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because we we here at at a trip through comedy and the Directors Club podcast support physical media and your local libraries. <laughs> oh, yeah. we sure do, and you know what? We also support lists. And I like yes. to end the conversation with our top three favorites. Mine is very well. I, I guess I always say this, don't I? Like I always say, mine is very predictable, but. <laughs> Uh, I maybe I'll just keep that up and just say that's true of every episode. Uh, number three for me is Bowfinger. Number two is Little Shop of Horrors, and number Ooh. one, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Rest in peace, Ooh. Glenn Headley. 
Yeah, wow. seriously. Yeah. Drip, I'll let, I'll let you go well, first. What do you, what do you look, uh, I mean, I feel really bad not including Muppets Take Manhattan in this top three because it is such a personal film to me. But um, I'm going to go number three, Bowfinger, number two, In and Out, and number one, Little Shop. So Wow. Lovely. Yeah. Always, always surprises me. Um, yeah, I'll be the I, – I guess I'm kind of the chalk then, or at least I think I'm chalk. Uh, number three is Muppets Take Manhattan. Number two, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and number one, Little Shop of Horrors. Those are all uh, such both, great movies. They're they're yeah. great. I think Trip and I have our full rankings. I think on Letterboxd, if you find us, I think we, we have Letterboxd yes. lists yeah. ranking yeah. all of them. Where can we find you guys? You mentioned Letterboxd. Ah! <laughs> no, now um, it's now it's Pee Wee Herman. All right. Oh, that's true. Him, but, oh, boy. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> we've said the magic um, word. Everyone suddenly oh, screaming. <laughs> Frank Oz and Paul Rubens would have been a great, a oh. great duo. But, um, mm. yes. Yeah, uh, you can. Uh, you can find me. Uh, I'm on Letterboxd. Uh, Trip Burton is uh, there, um, and then I'm all over social media, usually as Trip Burton thirteen. Yeah, and Trip's uh, little picture is a Muppet. Yes, that's yeah, true. Yeah. So, if yeah, if you come across my social media, yeah, it's uh, Fat Blue from uh, mostly the Sesame Street stuff. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess I'm on all of the socials, X, formerly known as Twitter, um, Letterbox, Blue Sky, Threads, uh, at R Bratton, and uh, you can find our show at uh, at ATTC Pod. Uh, wherever you get your social medias, yeah, we kind of we put we put, we pop up uh, wherever we can, and again, you can download it anywhere you get um, you get your podcasts. Remember, Trip does have two P's in it, so it's a trip just like comedy. Trip the person on two this P's. podcast, just like me. Yeah, it's a, it's a pun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big fan of those. Yeah, <laughs> and so are the Muppets. So is Frank Oz. So, so, is, Frank, so is the Muppets. Yeah. yeah. Oh, 100%. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if my sense of humor sort of originates in, from the Muppets. I, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. 100%. I, just, I think that that's mm-hmm. never going to change. Uh, yeah, and, and yet I am friends with a couple of people who hate the Muppets, and I don't know why I'm still friends with them. But That's a great question. <laughs> I think you really don't should trust, question. Don't trust them, Jim. No. I, I don't know. They, no. It's a little scary. There's definitely a, you should question all of their. Like if they give you advice, maybe do the opposite then. I need yeah. to send you both uh, an excerpt of because every year I do this little silly thing. It's like a Secret Santa only with uh, movies on a podcast called Still Watching oh. the Skies, where they talk about science fiction movies. But every oh. Christmas season, there's the f- there's five of us, and we all like secretly give each other a movie as a present. And one oh, year cool. somebody, we have to watch all five movies and talk about them on, on that episode. And one person chose Muppet Christmas Carol one year. And I was all happy and excited. And that's when I learned like right in the moment that one of my friends and one of the people on the podcast hates the Muppets. And I have to send you my reaction. Oh. Because you, I was just like, I was I like, can, no, this isn't, this can't be happening. Right. I was just like in total denial of what I was hearing. So yeah, it, that, 
is very Maybe they thought scary. they were a different thing. Like, they mm-hmm. thinking they've been watching the Muppets, but they've actually just been watching, like, the Happy Time murders for the last, you know, like, <laughs> however many years. Oh, like, God. I, just like, I forgot all about that. Oh, no. that in a theater. Oh. It was not good. I don't know. If all you've seen is the Jason Segel Muppet movie, then I might let it let it slide. Uh, I defend or that. Or the, or the it's, ABC it's right. Muppet show. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, Amy Adams, you can't go wrong. I, it's just no. charming. So, She's great. Um, all right. Well, anyway, thanks everybody for listening. And thank you, Trip and Ross. This was just, oh, I knew it was going to be fun. And <laughs> I mean, hell, next year you guys can come back. I mean, if you want to choose another comedy director, I'm all for it. But I won't, I won't hold you to that genre either. But in, no. in honor of Trip, I think now we have to choose an obscure French director who <laughs> there is. We go. A, <laughs> like we're gonna end up doing now, like you know, like uh, this is this is the trade-off. This is what we do. That yeah. could work. I'm. I mean, I'm, I'm not gonna. Can say we no. do Francois Francois Girard, and I can finally get Ross to watch the Red Violin, which oh, is a, the, a a running gag on the podcast. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yes. I swear. So, yeah. uh, we will. We will get to be watching the the Red Violin. Red I violin. think I Here have. I have told Trip <laughs> that. Uh, Again, like we, this, I, if I've had to make him watch all of these studio comedies, there's yeah. eventually going to be a point where I have to, you know, watch something that Trip would have watched in yeah. 1999. And the Red Violin's clearly the answer. Well, I'm looking forward to coming on your show to talk about a yes. movie that yes. uh, I, I, I don't know. If, do you want me to just say it now for yeah, everybody? Sure. Oh, okay. I wasn't yeah. sure if it was a secret or not, but no, I'm, oh, no. We're, we're I'm not that clever. I'm really excited and interested to revisit um, Doug Lyman's Go yeah. because yeah. it's a movie that when I first saw it, I was like, "Oh my gosh, you're really trying to be Tarantino, aren't you?" <laughs> and yet again, I don't know if how I'm going to feel about it now. I still obviously love Sarah Polly, but uh, we'll see. I'm very curious to go back to that and see if it does just feel like like a time relic of an era that will I have nostalgia for and just be like, oh, I miss the 90s. Oh, you know, um, and I'm I'm really curious. Um, I don't think either of us have seen it. Have you seen it? No. Ross? No, I but we, we should have covered it already in the podcast, but we had it slated and we took it out because um, I kind of wasn't sure about it. And I ran it by a friend and they were like, no, that that doesn't really fit your parameters. They didn't really think of it as a comedy per se. So I, um, I'm excited to kind of come back and it's and a dark I was comedy. Sad that we took it out. So, yeah, yeah. I'm excited to uh, to change things up. And and. Definitely. And Doug when, when you when you suggested it, both Ross and I jumped on it. So yeah, yeah. good. Doug Doug Lyman also never won to have any chaotic sets or <laughs> any issues in terms of getting films made. No, <laughs> not at all. Problematic yes. productions. Facts. Like, yeah. And uh, I'm ex- I don't, again. I'm excited for that, and I'll even I'll, I'll definitely have to talk about it. certainly his breakthrough filmed a little bit just because it was insane. Like in terms of culturally impacting yes. everybody's lives in the same way. Like I think someone like Kevin Smith did with, yeah, with yeah that was a formative film for me. Definitely. You're so money. 
You know, like so everybody was just oh, saying yeah. that oh. all the time. God. Oh, yeah. We, we all wanted to be those guys. So. Uh, well, except for calling a girl numerous, numerous times and leaving numerous messages. I, I don't know. That seems like something <laughs> I very well could have done. Uh, oh, no, I'm saying we wanted to be there, but not in that moment. Not in that moment. You don't want to be no, that person. No, 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 no. Nowadays, we just send texts. So. Yeah. <laughs> oh, great. That's better. You you can't send me a text, but you can send me an email to directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com and visit the website directorsclubpodcast.com. I'm going to link to uh, in the show notes all the fun stuff that uh, Trip Ross and I are all a part of. And it's again, this was such a joy, a pleasure, and uh, I'm very excited for the next couple of episodes. I'm going to say both are going to drop. <laughs> Uh, close to Christmas and New Year's. There's there's a special episode that uh, will drop possibly on New Year's Day. That's a it's, it's a special one with a capital S for a lot of reasons that I'm I'm not even putting it on the website. I'm not telling anybody what it is. Although maybe I've hinted at it in the past and I just don't remember. But uh, yeah, like I said, Kate Blair is going to join me for uh, Renee. L L Ellen Elaine Elaine Renee Elaine Renee Renee is how I would pronounce it. There we go. I trust Trip. Yeah, we're not going to talk about every single movie of his, but certainly the early ones that he's renowned for, and maybe a couple of his more recent titles as well. But I am very excited and interested to talk about his work because it's so unique, and yeah, I find a couple of his movies in particular very powerful. So. Stay tuned, everybody, and uh, thanks again, Trip and Ross, for coming on the show. Yay! We did it! Somehow I know we'll meet again. Not sure quite where, and I don't know just when. You're in my heart. So until then, wanna smile, wanna cry, saying goodbye. La 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 la, la, la. it's time for saying goodbye.